The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume, Lecture 10. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let us uh, begin. Our subject this evening is three followers of Descartes, who formed the bridge between the rationalism of Descartes in the 17th century and the subjectivism and skepticism of Berkeley and Hume, respectively, in the 18th century. The three men that we are going to cover this evening are two continental rationalists, namely Spinoza and Leibniz, and one British empiricist, John Locke. We'll consider Locke after the break in terms of his actual influence on later philosophers and on later cultural developments. Locke is definitely the most important of the three we'll be discussing this evening. I am, however, giving him comparatively less time than the other two tonight, only because his ideas are largely unoriginal in metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And in politics, where he shines, his politics is very simple to understand. And therefore, the presentation of Locke takes comparatively less time than of Spinoza and Leibniz. Now, turning to Spinoza and Leibniz, your understanding of the history of philosophy requires uh, that you have a knowledge of perspective, of who is and who isn't crucially important. So I want to say at the outset that Spinoza and Leibniz are not major turning points or profoundly influential <laughs> philosophers. They exerted some, but comparatively, little influence on subsequent philosophers and virtually no direct influence on the man in the street. Nobody, or if there is such, is very, very hard to find. Virtually nobody is a Spinozist or a Leibnizian. The way people are, Hobbesian or Cartesian or Platonic or Aristotelian. In a way, these two are the least influential of the major world-famous first-rank philosophers. Now, I include them in the course partly because they are world-famous, and therefore you're naturally curious, I assume partly because they do have one major function in the history of philosophy. They perpetuate and transmit Cartesian rationalism. They develop the philosophy of Descartes to its ultimate consistent consequences. And in so doing, they produce such bizarre philosophic systems that it occurred to philosophers watching the spectacle that something major was wrong with Descartes. In other words, with the general rationalist approach to philosophy. And the ground was thereby prepared for a school emphasizing that knowledge begins with sense perception, in other words, for the empiricist school. You will see that the systems of Spinoza and Leibniz are ingenious, complicated, deductive systems. They are, in effect, dream worlds of thought, intellectual castles in the air, unrelated to the world, to life, as we actually experience it day by day. And their very remoteness from this world produced the empiricist reaction to them. Now I should add that certain individual points of these philosophers definitely did influence later philosophers. Spinoza, for instance, had a vogue in Germany in the late 18th and early 19th century and is one of the formative factors on Hegel. And uh, Leibniz uh, formulated uh, certain concepts which were utilized by Freud and uh, in other ways, he definitely helped to influence Hume and Kant. So uh, you mustn't think that these people are only curiosity pieces, but they are certainly not the equivalent in influence of the major ones we've been stressing. <clears throat> 
Now I will therefore synopsize only the key points and conclusions necessary for our purposes and not attempt anything like a detailed exposition uh, or presentation even of their basic arguments. You will get uh, this evening a kind of hit and run Spinoza and Leibniz. Let us turn to Spinoza. 1632 to 1677, so he was about 18 when Descartes died. Now Spinoza's sources are in part medieval Jewish philosophy. He was himself a Jewish philosopher and very much influenced by medieval Jewish philosophy. He was taught a great deal of scholasticism and was thoroughly familiar with the scholastic tradition. And he was familiar with the developments of modern science. One of the primary goals of his philosophy was to reconcile his religious heritage with the developments of modern science. You will see in him a peculiar blend of religious mysticism and logical modern science. You remember that Descartes also had attempted to escape the materialist conclusions of Hobbes by finding a place for what he regarded as the religious conclusions in the world of science. And Descartes had done it by dividing the world up into two substances. Mind belongs to religion and matter belongs to science. Well, Spinoza also is interested in finding a place for religious worship in a universe properly studied by the physicists. He wants to save both, but his solution is rather different from Descartes. Turning to his epistemology briefly, Spinoza, as I said, was a rationalist. He is the second famous continental rationalist. Accordingly, he believes that the proper method of acquiring knowledge is the mathematical method, or in particular, the geometrical method. That is to say, we must model philosophy on geometry. It must start with basic axioms, self-evident axioms, which are clear and distinct. If you remember that expression of Descartes, which are grasped intuitively in Descartes' sense, that is simply self-evident, which do not require proof, and they are then the foundation for everything else. All subsequent knowledge will be acquired by deduction from these clear and distinct starting points. This was, of course, Descartes' program, but Descartes, if you recall, had not been very rigorous about it. Uh, he had proceeded along the path of his deductions, and every time he was stuck, he had a new intuition of a clear and distinct idea to help him along the path and smooth the transition on to the next series. Now Spinoza, however, is much more rigorous about applying Descartes' method. He wants to apply the method literally and make philosophy exactly like geometry. You're not allowed to have subsidiary intuitions along the way. You must, he says, specify all your axioms and definitions at the very outset, every one. And once these are laid down, every step must be deductively proved rigorously. We must really emulate geometry. And of course, the title of Spinoza's famous work is Ethica Ordine Geometrico Demonstrata, Ethics Demonstrated in Geometric Fashion. And it is exactly in structure like a geometry text. It starts with numbered axioms and definitions and it deduces the theorems, each one numbered. There's about, oh, I think something like 250 altogether, and it's common in discussing Spinoza to say Proposition 78, Book 1, etc. Now, uh, since Spinoza is a continental rationalist, you can guess what his attitude to sense perception is. He takes the Cartesian view. 
Uh, sense perception is inadequate, confused, basically an invalid form of knowledge. He subscribes with Descartes, with Hobbes, with Galileo to the distinction that Locke christened the primary secondary quality distinction. You remember the view that matter is really only extension, three-dimensionality, spread outness in space, and that therefore the way matter looks to us with sound and color and uh, taste and so on is really deception. By the senses, says Spinoza, we cannot distinguish what really pertains to things in reality and what is just the subjective secondary effects on us. Sensory knowledge is therefore confused and inadequate. It won't tell us what really exists. The senses, of course, are helpful for practical purposes. They may even be helpful as a suggestive stimulus to make us think of ideas that we subsequently validate by deductive means. But we can know nothing about reality only on the evidence of the senses. The true method of knowledge is to focus on our clear and distinct ideas and then deduce the consequences. This is, of course, typical Cartesian rationalism. And as we'll see, Spinoza assumes as self-evident, uh, as clear and distinct, a great many scholastic Platonic ideas, just as Descartes did. All right, let us turn to Spinoza's metaphysics. What is the nature of the universe? Well, where does Spinoza start? You remember Descartes had begun with the cogito, with the self, and had then gone on to prove the existence of God and finally the physical world. Spinoza has a different starting point. In essence, his philosophy starts with the proof of the existence of God. And his basic proof is a version of St. Anselm's ontological argument. I count on your remembering that because I'm not going to repeat it now. <coughs> To synopsize uh, Spinoza's argument, it amounts to this. I have, he says, the concept, the idea, of an absolutely independent, self-contained, infinite being. Well, now, let us just reason from this idea. If such a being exists, it can't be because some outside entity brought it into existence. Because if so, the being would be a product of outside factors, it wouldn't be completely self-contained, completely independent. In other words, it must be such if it exists at all that its very nature requires it to exist. Its essence, as he puts it, implies its existence. But if a thing is such that its essence implies its existence, that means from the very concept of such a thing, you can conclude that it must exist. Therefore, it does. You got that? You see, this is in effect Anselm's argument, only instead of talking about the concept of the most perfect being and concluding from its definition that it must exist, Spinoza somewhat changes the initial definition. And his argument is open to all the objections that Anselm's is. That it's all simply hypothetical and it only proves if there is a being answering to your definition, then there is one. But we knew that in advance. The question is, is there one? In any event, we pass on. This absolutely independent entity, I said, is infinite. And Spinoza takes this seriously. What does it mean to be infinite? Well, of course, it means not to be limited. Now, if you contrast this, this entity with a human being, a human being is limited or finite in two ways. It has only two attributes, for instance, mind and matter or body. 
And each of those attributes is finite in amount. It has a finite mind and a finite body. In saying that God is infinite, says Spinoza, we say that he is, excuse me, I shouldn't use the word God yet. Uh, uh, Spinoza calls this being God, so now I can use the word God. This infinite, uh, independent, uh, self-contained being. Since God has infinite attributes, uh, uh, since God is infinite, he has infinite attributes, that is an infinite number of different attributes, and each of them is infinite in extent, in quantity. So he is not limited in either of the ways that we are. Now this is a perfectly typical position, uh, the idea that God is infinite. The point is, Spinoza takes it seriously, uh, which few philosophers prior to him, some, but few, did. He argues as follows, if God is infinite, if he possesses infinite attributes, each of which is infinite in extent, how can there be room for anything else to exist besides or in addition to God? God is a being who has every imaginable and unimaginable attribute, an infinite number, and an infinite quantity of each. He must then be everything. There is no attributes left for anything else to have. So we can only conclude that God is the only thing which exists. A perfectly logical deduction from the premise. Well, you ask, what about the world? What about the physical nature? What about reality? Well, the answer in a word is, God is the world. God or nature or reality are just different names for the same one independent, infinite entity. This view, of course, is called pantheism. The view that God is identical with the totality of the world. God is everything and everything is God. And we have seen this view in the Stoics. It's a theory which goes back to ancient uh, Greece. Now, you may ask, when Spinoza says that God and uh, the universe or nature are only two different names for the one same totality, isn't this merely semantics? And the answer is yes and no. But mostly no, it's not semantics, because he conceives the universe in such a way that it has very, very religious attributes, as you'll see. So uh, there is a real legitimate usage of the term God as applied to the universe as Spinoza conceives it. However, in one sense, Spinoza is an atheist, in one sense. If you conceive God in the traditional Judeo-Christian fashion as a supernatural being beyond the world of nature, with a personality, a will, a plan, etc., looking down at the spectacle from his own dimension and having his own purposes, interfering with the course of nature and performing miracles, etc. If that's your idea of God, then Spinoza is an avowed atheist. He says God is nature. It's not a ghostly father controlling nature from beyond. And by the way, this position subjected Spinoza to the fierce, fiercest, vilest form of attacks from uh, the people, his contemporaries, he is the only really world-famous Jewish philosopher in all of thought, and the Jews formally excommunicated him uh, for uh, being uh, this horrendous atheist. He denies that God created the world out of nothing. He believes the universe is eternal. He denies that God has a personality, that he's a loving or providential father. You cannot pray to Spinoza's God any more than you can pray to the total of reality. He has no plan, and Spinoza is a real polemicist against miracles. 
against the argument from design. You know, only God can make a tree, that uh, Reader's Digest type argument. Now, I have no time to quote Spinoza here, but I do want to at least mention that he makes many very, very good remarks criticizing the traditional religious view. There is a definite rational scientific side to Spinoza, which is very admirable as far as it goes and very uncharacteristic of the 17th century. So bear that in mind, but let us proceed with Spinoza's system. Well, the first thing to recognize is that if everything which exists is in God or is a part of God, then it can obviously only be understood by seeing its relation to God. Now, this is a typically religious attitude in a non-pantheistic philosophy. Everything depends on God and can be understood only as caused or produced by God in some way. The question is, what does this mean if you're a pantheist? It can't be that God has a plan and by an act of will produces everything because God is everything, not an outsider imposing his will. Well, at this point, <coughs> Spinoza takes a turn determined by his rationalism. The universe he believed with Descartes is a logical universe. After all, that's why we can study it geometrically with axioms leading to theorems. <coughs> Reality is a logically related, integrated totality where everything happens as it does as an inevitable logical consequence of pre previous events and the nature of the whole. So, religion said everything comes from God. Rationalism said everything happens geometrically, in other words, by logical necessity from basic principles. Spinoza puts the two together and says everything comes from God geometrically or logically. In other words, he puts together religion and geometry in a pantheistic form. And the upshot is therefore his view that reality or God, and you can always use those two as synonyms for Spinoza, reality or God has a certain basic nature. And from that basic nature, every single aspect of reality follows inexorably with the same logic as theorems in geometry follow from axioms. Now, you know, for instance, that if I give you the definition of a triangle and the appropriate axioms, I can deduce the absolute necessity of the angle sum of that triangle being 180 degrees. And we're here talking of a Euclidean triangle. Any alternative would be logically impossible. It would be a contradiction and therefore be forbidden by the laws of logic. Well, that's the model to keep in mind to understand Spinoza's view of the universe. Everything that exists Everything that happens <coughs> for him is related to the basic nature of reality in the way that the angle sum of a triangle is related to the nature of a triangle. And if, therefore, you clearly grasp what is the nature of reality, you will see that everything, the smallest aspect and the broadest principle, is logically inevitable, and any alternative would be a logical self-contradiction, would be forbidden by the very laws of logic themselves. <clears throat> when then we say that God is the cause of the world, we really mean that God or reality has a certain basic nature and that everything follows logically from this nature. God causes the world in the same sense exactly that geometric axioms cause their theorems. In other words, he logically implies them and anything else would be a self-contradiction. 
Now, if you drop the religious references, which are probably making you uncomfortable, forget the word God for a moment. What Spinoza is saying is that we live in a rational, logical world. In effect, that it's governed by an ironclad law of cause and effect, and that the law of cause and effect itself is guaranteed by the laws of logic. And he is, of course, correct in this view. He has been attacked endlessly by people uh, following David Hume uh, for believing that the universe is logical when Hume allegedly proved that it wasn't. So I want to emphasize that stripped of its religious aspects, the core of Spinoza's view on this one point is certainly correct. However, Spinoza draws from it a conclusion that objectivism certainly would not. Namely, he believes that if you believe in an ironclad logical universe where everything happens according to the law of causality in accordance with the laws of logic, you must then be a determinist. And he is accordingly a determinist. He says man is also part of reality. He is also a logically inevitable consequence of the total nature of reality. And every aspect of him, his thoughts, his emotions, his actions, are as absolutely logically necessitated as the angle sum of a triangle. If man did anything differently, even the tiniest thing different from the way he actually did, that would violate the very laws of logic themselves. It would require a contradiction. And therefore, Spinoza is sometimes referred to as a logical determinist, meaning by that uh, determinism via the laws of logic itself. We cannot, says Spinoza, even imagine in fantasy an alternative to any human action, thought, or emotion which has ever occurred, any more than you can imagine a round square, because the alternative to anything which happens would be a contradiction. We do, says Spinoza, have a sense of freedom, but this is an illusion. This is caused by the fact that we do not understand the causes operating. If a stone, he says, somewhere were rolling downhill in complete blind obedience to the law of gravity, and if it were conscious, it would probably think to itself, how free I am going down the hill. But the fact is, the stone is a pawn completely moved by factors outside of its control, and its illusion of freedom is an illusion caused by ignorance. It looks to the future and doesn't realize the past factors which are necessitating its behavior. Well, so for man. In this respect, Spinoza is perhaps the most rigid determinist in the whole history of philosophy. And you see, he derives it simply from the law of cause and effect, from the idea that the universe is rigidly logical. And therefore, the problem he poses is how do you reconcile free will with the laws of causality and logic? Now, since I've covered that elsewhere, uh, I will not go into it here. But if you do not have the answer to that question, now is the time to be sure you have it. Otherwise, you will be trapped in the Spinozistic determinism. I'll let us proceed with Spinoza. We've said that God is the world. Well, let's now ask, what kind of world is it? Or put the same question another way, what kind of being is God? Well, for Spinoza, there's only one independent entity, which is the universe, which, following the terminology of Descartes, he calls a substance. Remember, Descartes' definition of a substance is a thing which is independent of everything else. 
There's only one such substance according to Spinoza, namely the universe as a whole, or God. Well, what then is the status of mind and matter? Descartes had thought these were each substances, so he is classified as a dualist. But of course, for Spinoza, mind and matter cannot be substances. Only the totality is a substance. And therefore, what else can they be but mind and matter must be properties or attributes of something. Well, of what? Obviously, of the only thing which exists, namely God. Therefore, mind and matter must be two attributes or properties belonging to and expressing God's nature. They must be two attributes of the one reality, namely God. Now we have a problem. An attribute in this terminology is supposed to express the basic nature of a substance. It's supposed to tell you what essentially a substance is. And on the face of it, on the face of it, now whenever I say that, you should know that I'm about to contradict you. But on the face of it, mind and matter are radically different things. Consider, for instance, an actual physical earthquake and a mental phenomenon which corresponds to what your thought of that earthquake. Now, these, uh, we could list radically different characteristics. For instance, your thought of the earthquake doesn't make any noise. The earthquake does. Your thought of the earthquake doesn't destroy human lives. The earthquake does. Your thought of the earthquake is at no particular point in space and doesn't register on the Richter scale and so on. The earthquake does and so on. Now, mind and matter, in other words, seem to be radically different. How can one single entity, namely God, be at the same time essentially mind and essentially matter? How can two such different properties both express what God essentially is? How will we understand this? Well, of course, if you're not a rationalist, you will say, I better start over again and check my basic premises by observation and see how I got into this snarl. But if you are a rationalist, you will proceed headlong with your chain of deductions because you've got your clear and distinct axioms and you must be right up to here, so you just take the bull by the horns and go on from there. Now, in principle, you've got two choices if you come this far with me. You can either say, well, one of those two isn't really real. Mind and matter aren't both real. One of them is really an illusion, an appearance. And that would solve the problem, because then you'd say, God, for instance, is really only mind. And we don't have to explain how he can also be really matter, because we say matter is an illusion. If you regard that as a solution, that's one possibility. The other possibility is to take a bold leap. And the bold leap is the leap that Spinoza took. Namely, these two properties are not really different. They are ultimately the same. Mind and matter are simply two different ways of expressing the same thing. In other words, either you get rid of one of them and say it's just an illusion, or you say there's no problem because the two aren't really different. Leibniz took the first alternative, and of course you can guess which one he got rid of as unreal, namely matter under the influence of Descartes' prior certainty of consciousness. Spinoza took the other side. Now what does it mean to say mind and matter are the same ultimately? They're two different expressions of God. Well, here I must resort to an analogy. 
Consider two different languages, French and English. Now, this is just an analogy, but it's a helpful analogy. And suppose that the stand-in for God in this analogy is a discussion, a discussion. Now, a discussion can be in French, or the same discussion could be in English. Now, suppose, for instance, that the same discussion were taking place in two different rooms, the exactly same discussion. There was a point-for-point -point correspondence. Every time a question was asked in French, the same question was asked in English. And when the answer was given in French, in the next room, the answer was given in English. These are two self-contained little discussions. Well, it would be the same one discussion manifesting itself in two different forms. Now, notice that French and English in this analogy don't divide the discussion between themselves. It's not as though half the discussion is French and half is English. All of it's in French. And in the same room, simultaneously, all of it's in English. Well, that's the pattern on which you have to understand Spinoza's theory of the relation of mind and matter. There are two different expressions of the one same reality, two different forms in which God's nature manifests itself. Each expresses completely what God essentially is, just as each of those uh, two languages expresses the discussion completely in the analogy. And each expresses the same underlying reality, just as it's only the one discussion. It's just that God happens to express or manifest himself in two different forms. So it's not that reality is partly matter and partly mind, as Descartes said. No, mind and matter don't divide reality. The whole of reality, or the whole of God, is completely expressed by mind. The mind series of events, the mind language, if you want to look at it that way. And the whole of reality is completely expressed by matter. The body, or matter language, if you want to look at, that, at it this way. And therefore, mind and matter are ultimately the same. They are, in effect, two different expressions of one identical reality. Now. If you're with me so far, it follows that there must be a point-for-point -point correspondence between the mental and the physical. Since each expresses the same reality and does so in a rigidly logical, inevitable fashion, the two must parallel each other. Just as in the analogy of the, two, uh, uh, the two languages, we can translate back and forth. For every sentence in the one discussion, there'll be an exact counterpart in the other, because each expresses the same discussion in the same order. And so there's a point-for-point -point correspondence. For every French word, there's an English equivalent. Well, so with mind and body. We can, for Spinoza, translate back and forth. There are two series of events, the mental series and the physical series. This viewpoint is known as the metaphysics of psychophysical parallelism. Psychophysical parallelism. It means simply mind-body parallelism. It's the view that there is an exact point-for-point -point parallelism between mental and physical events. And that the reason there is such a parallelism is that ultimately the two sets of events are really the same one phenomenon, or same one entity. <coughs> now before we go any further, I'd better add Remember, there's an infinite number of attributes, not just mind and matter. God is infinite. And you might ask me, what about the other infinity minus two? And I simply say that Spinoza says these happen to be unknowable to the human mind. 
So you have to think in the analogy that the same discussion is going on in an infinite number of languages from eternity to eternity, but we're only tuned into two of these languages, so to speak. But we all live in countless other worlds uh, beyond the mental and the physical that happen to be unknowable to us. Well, we can leave the unknowable ones and come back to just the two we know, the mental and the physical. Now you might ask, what would possess anybody to take a view like this? <coughs> and there are several reasons, I'll mention one. It avoids the problem of interaction. <clears throat> now you remember the problem that Descartes bequeathed. Mind and matter are so radically different, Descartes said. One is in space and moves only on physical contact by mechanical law. The other is exclusively a conscious thinking entity, does not occupy space, how can the two of them possibly influence each other? Well, Descartes had said, it's a miracle. God is great. God is marvelous, and somehow incomprehensibly he allows them to influence each other. Spinoza is much more rigorous and consistent. He won't permit that kind of miracle. He says the solution is there is no interaction. Mind cannot act on matter. Matter cannot act on mind. There is no mutual influence at all. Each of these two attributes is a completely self-contained closed system. Events in the mental world are caused only by preceding mental events. Events in the material world are caused only by preceding physical events. Just as in the analogy, French doesn't cause English, and English doesn't cause French. They're two self-contained little dimensions which run parallel to each other. Now, where would anybody get the idea that there's interaction? He mixes up his series. Suppose, for instance, you hear a question in English, and then you rush to the French room and you hear the answer in French. You might think, if you're confused enough, you see that the French question interacted with the English and produced the answer. But that's obviously your confusion. So, says Spinoza, I can account for the <coughs> appearance of interaction while denying the actual existence of it. Of course, he says, whenever you have an act of will, for instance, to move your arm, the arm will move. And that's, you see, the apparent example of mind influencing matter. And of course, whenever I stick a pin in you, which is a physical event, you will experience a little thrill of pain, which is a mental event. But that doesn't mean there's any causal interaction in either direction. Each series goes its own way. Do you reason that the act of will and the bodily movement, or the sticking of the pin and the thrill of pain, seem to be causally related is because they are actually the same one event manifesting itself in two different languages. Expressing the same one reality, we just get our languages confused, you see. And therefore, of course, there will be parallelism between the two. Now, you see, for, from Spinoza's point of view, there are great advantages in this scheme. We have saved a mechanistic material physical world of science entirely untouched by mind. And so mind can't influence matter and the scientists are presumably happy they now have their preserve of a strict mechanical world to study and no mind is going to interfere with the laws of mechanics. On the other hand, we haven't done it at the price of falling into Hobbes's trap of denying mind and thought and purpose and so on. We have saved a world of thought and purpose independent of matter. That's the mind series. And we did it, although this is basically a Cartesian 
division. We have done it in a way without being unintelligible like Descartes was, because we can account for the appearance of interaction while denying the fact. Now, I think you can see that while this is a fantastic viewpoint, it is not because Spinoza is inconsistent. On the contrary, it is because he is so consistent. Spinoza is a much superior philosopher to Descartes. Granted the basic premises, Spinoza carries them out to the bitter end. Uh, Descartes gets scared and has a new intuition and turns himself on to the next direction. And of course, Descartes was not the man to come in conflict with the church. <coughs> now, you may ask, how does uh, psychophysical uh, parallelism apply to rocks and rivers and inanimate things? Now, this is the debated point in Spinozistic interpretation. I simply say that Spinoza seems to say that everything is to some degree animate, alive, or even conscious in a way, and that the correlate of every physical fact is some kind of mental state. But this is a highly debated point, and we don't have to pursue it uh, here. Well, now we have another problem. If these are two, mind and matter, are two expressions of the same one reality, what is this reality in itself, apart from its expressions? Now, it can't be mind, because mind is just an expression of it. And it can't be matter, because matter is just an expression of it. Now, you see, this is where my analogy to the discussion breaks down. Because the discussion is, there is a reality there, apart from the French or English that is being spoken. Namely, people having thoughts. And so it's possible to talk about two manifestations. But here, what are the manifestations, manifestations of? There's apparently nothing <coughs> for reality in itself to be, because remember, all attributes are simply expressions of it, an infinite number. Now, apparently, and again, this is a debated point, but apparently Spinoza believed that God, therefore, or reality, in itself, apart from its manifestations, was actually nothing. And all the manifestations were therefore really manifestations of a cosmic metaphysical zero. Now, to try to make this intelligible, you must remember the school of negative theology which we discussed. Remember the idea that God, I discussed that some weeks ago, that God can't be limited you can't give him any attributes or qualities because if you give him any identity, then he's A versus non-A, and that's impious and irreligious. And it was common in the negative theology tradition to say, if you want to say what God is, you have to deny any characteristics to him. In other words, you have to say he is really nothing. Now, Spinoza really, I think, although this is debatable, really belongs to the school of negative theology. And you'll see the mysticism involved here. At the core of the spinozistic universe is this mystical, indeterminate, uncharacterizable entity, lacking identity, which manifests itself in all these attributes. As one commentator puts it in a pregnantly bizarre statement, God is everything and therefore nothing, if you follow that. Now, there are people who say that's not fair to Spinoza. God is just a name for him for the various series, for the mind series and the body series, and he's not anything underneath them. That's all. But uh, it seems unlikely that this is his view because the attributes 
are supposed to parallel each other because they're two expressions of the same one reality. Which raises the question, expressions of what? Well, some people say expressions of each other. But since each other is an expression, you have expressions of expressions of what? So it seems that you're driven back to nothing. We can leave that point, though. <coughs> the situation is actually still worse than this. Because we've talked up to now of mind and matter in general as being identical attributes. Now, what about particular specific individual minds and particular specific individual material things? How do tables and chairs or your individual mind and my individual mind fare on Spinoza's metaphysics? Well, here you should be able to foresee. He is a pantheist. God is the whole, the single integrated substance. Well, what is going to happen then to the reality or individuality of what we call particular things? Spinoza's answer is going to be particular things are just separated aspects of the whole. Individuality is not really real, neither mentally nor physically. Really, there are no autonomous independent entities at all. There is only the one cosmic substance. Now consider, for instance, matter. We know its essence is extension, three-dimensionality, spread outness. Now, strip off all secondary qualities from matter. No color, so it's invisible. No texture, you can't touch it. No sound, it makes no noise, etc. Now ask yourself, this pure extension, how does it differ from space? Ordinary, empty space. And says Spinoza, there is no difference between matter as it really is and space. And I mean, this is plausible when you strip off all the secondary qualities, when you have only extension left, well, space is supposed to be extended. He did not, by the way, originate this conclusion. Descartes also equated matter, true matter, with simply space. Well, if so, you can't break space up into separate real hunks. Any divisions you make in space is only a fragmented human way of looking at it. All that really exists is the indivisible infinite slab of space. A piece of space, if I tell you focus on this little piece over here, that's simply an abstraction, obviously. It's not a separate real entity. And that is Spinoza's view, therefore, since he equates space with matter of physical entities. So when he talks of matter, he doesn't mean bodies you can weigh and measure and dissect and sit on and kick around. That all is the world of appearance. In the material world, in the material world, individual entities merely are appearance. Now, what about individual minds? Are they real? No, individuality is unreal in mind, just as it is in matter. Now, of course, if you introspect, you feel that there is a you which is distinct, and which is definitely you and absolutely different from everybody else's mind. But if you reach the level of thought, that you see is the crude, confused level of sense perception. But if you reach the level of abstract thought, says Spinoza, you will come to realize that that isn't true. Think about it now. Remember now, I'm counting on the idea that mind and matter are identical, ultimate. Which means, therefore, that your thought of an object is really ultimately identical with the object. When you think of an earthquake, or we talk about the actual physical earthquake, the thought 
and the object, the earthquake, are really two different expressions of the same thing. They're really identical. Well, now think about it. Your mind is all of your ideas. In other words, everything you think about. And my mind is all of my ideas. Everything I think about. But we both think about the same thing, namely, the universe. And therefore, my mind is the same as your mind. You get that? You see, this is a triumph of geometric deduction over reality. Although Spinoza wouldn't put it that way. In other words, says Spinoza, we can conclude that in the deepest sense, each of us intellectually, psychologically, mentally is all of the others. In a word, there's parallelism between the two spheres. And there must always be an exact correspondence. If individuality is unreal in matter, it must be unreal in mind also. And really, therefore, there is only an infinite slab of space and an infinite divine mind or system of ideas. Our own sense of uh, personal identity, therefore, our own personality, our own sense of uniqueness, is a confusion. It's the way things appear to us. But in actual reality, all so-called separate bodies are merely modes or aspects of one slab of space. And all so-called minds are merely modes or aspects of one cosmic infinite mind or system of ideas. And if you add to that, that mind and matter are ultimately identical, so that space and the infinite mind are really the same thing, we will come to the final conclusion that everything is ultimately one and ultimately identical to everything else. In other words, that distinctions are really unreal. Now you see, I think, the very platonic character of this viewpoint, even neoplatonic character. And here is the real influence of Plato again. On the one hand, there's a true reality which consists of a cosmic system of ideas and a slab of space, that's pure Plato, as against a world of appearances which is not true reality. There is reason, the faculty which knows true reality, versus the senses, the faculty which knows the world of appearances. And there's even the Platonic idea that individuality and distinctions are not ultimately real, Remember Plotinus's view that everything is ultimately the one. So you see that all of this Platonic mysticism comes out again in Spinoza. And that shouldn't surprise you because this world is always metaphysically degraded by rationalists. After they get finished with their deductions, this world always ends up as an appearance, a reflection, or something of a lesser status. True reality is always some superior realm. And this is the... Uh, Essential illustration of the connection between rationalism, as that term is used philosophically, and religion. And it's inherent in the very rationalist approach. Because if the senses are no good, then the world must be basically different from the way it appears. If a rationalist came out at the end of his chain of deductions with a world that was identical to the world given us by the senses, he would be in a ridiculous position. Why be a rationalist to begin with then? And therefore, you always end up with a superior reality. And almost nine times out of ten, you end up with Plato's. Now, there's a final problem I want to uh, mention in dealing with Spinoza. 
That is an epistemological problem. I'm jumping over dozens of points just to give you one more. Let us grant him the best. Let us grant him that his axioms really are clear and distinct and unanswerable. And that he has deduced all of their consequences unanswerably as a perfectly consistent, unobjectionable system. We must now observe, however, that all of his axioms and theorems are general propositions, universal propositions. You don't have a clear and distinct insight that some particular triangle, imagine there was a blackboard before you with a whole bunch of particular triangles inscribed on. You do not have a clear and distinct insight innately that some particular triangle is three feet away from another one and has to be by the definition of triangle. Nothing in the definition of triangle will tell you that. You don't have a clear and distinct insight that there are ten triangles on that board drawn in one uh, in white chalk and that that must be so by the nature of reality. The most you could have would be some general proposition of the order triangularity has certain properties. And no one, I may say, in philosophy has ever claimed innate knowledge of particular things because a knowledge of particular things too obviously depends upon experience. From Plato on, the knowledge which comes uh, above experience is always explained as universal knowledge. You know, for instance, A is A, perhaps, but you don't know that A is a puppy dog. You know two and two is four. You don't know those two students are to the left of those two students. You know man is rational, but you don't know that man is marvelous at geometry you see. Well, where are we then? At the end of all of our deductive reasoning, we have only knowledge of general, universal truths. Well, how do we ever get knowledge of particular, individual, specific, concrete, actually existing entities and events? How do we get to see the necessity of particular events? And Spinoza has told us that everything is logically necessary, and that as a rationalist, he will explain everything. Now, if I jump ahead a while, I'll simply tell you an anecdote in regard to Hegel, who took the same view of Spinoza that everything is logically deducible by rationalistic fashion. And he was confronted one day by an obscure gentleman known as Herr Krug, K-R-U-G, who held up his prosaic pen and said to Hegel, all right, you claim to be able to deduce the entire universe, including everything which is in it, by rationalistic deduction, here's my pen, my particular real concrete pen. Go ahead and deduce it from your categories or principles or whatever it is you start with. I'm waiting for you to show how my pen follows. Now, uh, according to the story that has come down to us, Hegel answered, in effect, I'm a philosopher and I can't be bothered with pens. <laughs> in other words, he used his fame and prestige to crush poor Herr Krug. And you see why. Conceivably, let's grant him the most he could maybe deduce the theorem, I don't know, penness implies inkiness, some general principle. But why there must be this particular pen here and now, he couldn't do it. And you see why. He couldn't derive existence, concrete, real, actual existence, from concepts in consciousness. And that was, of course, the problem Descartes bequeathed. And here it's breaking out again. How do you get from concepts and consciousness to the actual facts of existence? Which means for Spinoza, how can we ever know the necessity of particular things in the world if we are locked in consciousness studying universal principles and concepts?
Now Spinoza answered this question in his own way. He said there is actually a third kind of knowledge, which is the highest kind of knowledge. First, and the lowest kind is sensation or sense perception. That is the confused knowledge. That's the lowest. So that simply tells you that particular things exist, but doesn't tell you why. The next level is rational knowledge. That involves the grasping of clear and distinct general principles and the deduction from them. In other words, Descartes' approach. And that's fine, says Spinoza, that gives you true knowledge, but only general knowledge. And then finally we get to something which he called scientia intuitiva, which is essentially intuitive knowledge, but that's a different use of intuition from Descartes now. This is, to make a long story short, a mystical vision in which we grasp in an ineffable insight how every actual concrete particular thing necessarily comes from God. When you have this vision, you see how Herr Krug's pen had to be by the nature of the whole totality. But it is an ineffable, in effect, mystic trance. You see that from this and many other signs I've indicated Spinoza as a pantheism is not simply a matter of semantics. And you see that the most consistent rationalists usually end in a mystic vision of some kind. Plato ended with his vision of the form of the good. Plotinus ended with his ecstasy. And the explanation of it is very simple. Since they don't derive their concepts from percepts, they can't derive percepts from their concepts. And consequently, they are left with only a mystic recourse. Now we can make a prediction. Uh, the rationalist and the person of Spinoza declare that reality is logical. And then they construe reality as a super realm from which they cannot deduce the actual facts of this world. Now, if you are familiar with the extent to which false alternatives exist in philosophy, you shouldn't be surprised to find that they're arch enemies. The empiricist will say, watching the failure of the rationalist to deduce the actual concretes of this world, aha, this proves that reality is illogical, or at least non-logical, that things don't happen for logical reasons. They just happen. They're brute, unintelligible, quote, contingent facts. And of course, that viewpoint is all over the place today. If today you should ever say to a professional philosopher, you believe that reality is logical. If you should ever say, God help you, the real is rational, that being a phrase immortalized by Hegel, you are done for. Because I have known a professor who to this very day, in spite of, uh, not just one, in spite of all my arguments with him, insists that I am a follower of Hegel, or in some moods he thinks of Spinoza, <laughs> Because I hold that reality is rational. And if you hold that reality is rational, you must be a rationalist who believes that everything is deducible uh, rationalistically uh, and so on. Now, of course, the answer is reality is governed by logic, but only a proper epistemology will enable you to discover its laws, not a rationalistic one. But you simply can't communicate that to certain mentalities. <clears throat> Now, we must leave Spinoza now. I simply want to say that he has a very famous ethical theory. It hasn't been particularly influential compared to other theories, but it's certainly famous. 
And so I would like to have said a few words about it. And if you ask me in the question period about Spinoza's ethics, I will utilize five minutes or so to give you the highlights. In any event, we can say for Spinoza in leaving him that his system is certainly ingenious. It's thoroughly worked out in deductive fashion. And if you consider it as an integration of the most diverse elements, it's certainly original, even if often baldly contradictory. And in any event, I've really given you only less than a taste of it. That's all that we have uh, time for. Let us go on now to Leibniz. <coughs> to Leibniz. 1646 to 1716, you can spell it either N-I-Z or N-I-T-Z, as you wish. And so since he died in 1716, we are creeping into the 18th century. And now I'll be even briefer on Leibniz. He too has an ingenious, complicated overall system, more fantastic than Spinoza's. Profuse argumentation at every step, essentially all fallacies. I am omitting almost all his arguments. I'm just giving you a quick sketch to give you an idea. Now he too is a rationalist at least three quarters of the time. He made some fun of rationalism, and there are even some anti-rationalist features in his philosophy, as we'll see. And scholars distinguish two Leibnizes, the pure rationalist Leibniz and the mixed Leibniz. But we're only going to look at the mixed Leibniz. That was, that's what was most influential, insofar as either of them was. Now, as a rationalist, he believes that reasoning alone can discover the nature of the universe. Here's the usual opposition to the senses, uh, the crucial knowledge, the foundational knowledge is innate. We introspect to grasp it, and then we deduce its uh, uh, consequences. Turning to his metaphysics, he disagrees with Spinoza's pantheism. He believes that finite substances or entities are real. It's not true that we're all parts of God. And this was, of course, the orthodox Christian position, and Leibniz certainly is eager to be orthodox. He does believe in God, and he believes that God is infinite, and he has no answer to Spinoza's argument as to why, if God is infinite, there's no room for anything else. He just simply goes about his business. He is not the one to take risks like Spinoza. Well, let's look at one of these finite substances, like a table or a chair or a rock or a mountain. What is it really? Well, it is compound. The world is filled of things which are compound. In other words, substances consisting of parts. That's what compound means, <coughs> consisting of parts. Well, if there are compounds, there must ultimately be simple substances. After we break the compounds down to their ultimate constituents, we must reach the ultimate indivisible substances. <coughs> and the technical name for indivisible is simple. And these simple substances, of course, themselves will have no parts. Otherwise, they too would be compound. Now, such a simple substance Leibniz calls a monad. M-O-N-A-D, from the Greek word monas, meaning one, that which is one. Now these monads, or simple substances, are in effect the atoms of nature. The whole universe is made up of these, atoms, of these monads. Now this will sound to you like the atomic theory. And Leibniz in his youth was attracted to Democritus. But of course this is a different period of time and different influences, and he goes Democritus one step better. He says the monads, the ultimate atoms of things, cannot be material or extended in space at all. 
Why? Because if they're extended, he argues they would be divisible, at least in thought. We could, for instance, even if the little tiny thing was a quarter of an inch or a zillionth of an inch, we could separate the left half of it from the right half in our mind, so it would still be divisible, it wouldn't be simple. But we've proved that there must be simple entities comprising the universe, and therefore extension can't be an ultimate attribute of these uh, monads. So they're not material, they're not extended, they're absolutely indivisible, even in thought. And therefore, of course, they're not in space, because you have to be material to be in space. Now, I interject in one sentence that the main fallacy here is the fact that you divide something in thought in no way entitles you to say it's divide, divisible in reality. You see the typical Cartesian jump from consciousness to existence. I can conceive of dividing it, therefore it can be divided. And that's the typical primer certainty of consciousness. In any event, Leibniz proceeds from this foundation to a long chain of reasoning. Again, consistent to the bitter end like a good continental rationalist. The monads we said are not extended. They're not spread out. They're not material. They don't occupy space. Well, but they must have some nature. What could it be? Well, for various reasons, but essentially the influence of Descartes. Descartes established that everything that isn't matter must be mind. And consequently, Leibniz concluded that the monads are ultimately minds, souls, consciousnesses, perceiving beings, using perceiving being in the widest sense for a non-material focus of awareness. Well, you might ask, if you're still with me, what do the monads perceive? Well, obviously they can only perceive other monads, because that's all there is. Each monad, says Leibniz, perceives every other monad in the universe. Each monad is a living mirror of the entire universe of monads. And perceive here means simply is aware of. Not, it's not restricted to sensory perception, as you'll see there's various grades of monads. Well, now, what distinguishes one monad from the other? How do you tell where one monad stops and the next one starts? They're all minds perceiving the universe. What makes this particular monad this one rather than that one? In other words, what's the source of individuality of the, of the monad? Answers Leibniz, it is in how they perceive. Some monads perceive clearly and distinctly. Some obscurely and confusedly. That's what differentiates the monads. The universe, therefore, is an infinite number of monads perceiving each other, each with its own precise degree of clarity and distinctness. Now, no two have exactly the same degree of clarity. Otherwise, it would be the same monad. See, that's the only thing which individuates, which differentiates one monad from the other. So we have an infinite continuum. On the bottom is the lowest, most confused, most unclear monad, in effect a sub-freshman monad. <laughs> and it goes on up to the monad with, perceives with absolute, total, perfect clarity, and that of course is God, and every possible shade of clarity is represented. Now this sort of viewpoint that reality is essentially non-material, although not necessarily in the monad form, uh, is, as you know, called idealism. And Leibniz is therefore a staunch idealist metaphysically. And it represents the ultimate triumph of the primacy of consciousness. When you reach idealism, consciousness swamps existence completely 
and existence simply is a collection of consciousnesses. And so this is the final upshot, you see, of Descartes. Now we've seen the major objections to this, but I can't resist pointing out that the whole case is so eloquently clear in Leibniz. The monads, he tells us, are perceiving beings. Why do they perceive? Other monads. But other monads are only perceiving beings too. What is there to perceive? Nothing. In this whole universe, it is absolutely empty. It consists of a whole infinite number of consciousnesses, each perceiving with an infinite number of degrees of clarity, nothing at all. Now this is the triumph, you see, of consciousness without existence. And it's as good an example of the flaws of idealism or the primacy of consciousness as you'll ever find. But we can leave this problem because others are pressing in. The monads are minds. And Descartes had said that minds are independent substances. And remember, a substance is that which exists in such a way as to stand in need of nothing beyond itself in order to exist. A mental substance for Descartes is a completely self-contained, locked-in, independent entity. Well, Leibniz follows him. He insists with Descartes that this is true. Each monad is absolutely impervious. It's a self-contained, independent little world. No monad, he says, can in any way whatever influence or affect any other monad. And that simply follows Descartes. Descartes had tried to sneak in interaction among his constituents, but he couldn't make it intelligible. Leibniz here follows Spinoza. There is no interaction. There's no influence at all. Each substance is completely independent, its own little world. No monad can in any way be acted upon by any other monad. As he put it in a famous metaphor, but only a metaphor, the monads have no windows from which anything can enter or go forth. Now that's just a metaphor because they're not physical, so obviously they have no windows, but it's a way of saying they simply can't influence any other monad nor be influenced by any other. And ever since this formulation, they have been called the windowless monads. Now you will begin to see from conclusions of this sort to sympathize to some extent with the empiricists who hear all this and they say, oh, to hell with deduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, to continue with liveness for a while, we have real problems now. How can the monads perceive each other, even supposing there was something to perceive, without being affected by one another? How does the monad, which is my mind, perceive, for instance, the monads which are your body, since those monads can't act on my monad? Well, the solution to all problems is always God. God, says Leibniz, endowed each monad with all its perceptions in potential form when he created it. In effect, uh, if you think as an analogy, God stuck a certain motion picture film in advance inside each monad and your conscious experience life is simply locked up in your own little world watching the film roll on. You're locked in your own projection room. So it seems as though you're being affected by other monads, but you really aren't. Every experience is set in advance by God when you're created, and your conscious life just enrolls on inevitably inside your own projection room. <coughs> well, we can leave this for a moment. We'll come back and ask, now, what is matter for life? Well, it also must be a collection of monads, because everything is. Now you say to me, surely matter isn't composed of perceiving entities. 
surely matter isn't conscious. Well, says Leibniz, no, it isn't conscious. It perceives unconsciously without being aware that it's perceiving. And uh, so he introduced the concept of unconscious awareness or unconscious perception. And I should just mention in passing, this is one of the earliest mentions in history of the concept of unconscious awareness. It was hinted at in other people, but this is one of the earliest explicit mentions. Of course, it was taken over by Freud, and although misused mystically by Freud, it is a valuable psychological concept. And it's not startling to you today. You talk blithely of unconscious motivation, unconscious premises, etc. But it was startling at this period in time. And Leibniz, therefore, does get credit for uh, developing this concept to some extent, even if you don't want to give him credit for the metaphysical motives which led him to endorse it. Of course, uh, <coughs> only conscious beings, in fact, can be unconscious at times and over specific issues. How a completely non-conscious entity, like a chair, can be unconsciously aware without ever being consciously aware of anything, how that is possible, Leibniz does not explain. But that's the least of our problems. In any case, we have an infinite range of monads. Four general groups. The lowest, most confused, most unclear monads, which have only unconscious perceptions, constitute matter. They are what Leibniz refers to as the naked monads. And you can think of them as monads in a deep coma, or monads which are fast asleep. A material thing is actually a cluster of naked monads. It looks to you as though it's extended, physical, three-dimensional, but that is simply confused sensory appearance. That is not what it really is. Now, if a collection of naked monads clusters around one dominant monad, which is considerably clearer than they, which is now conscious and has memory and sense perception, we call that totality an animal. And if a group of naked monads clusters around one dominant monad, which is still clear, which has risen to the level of rational knowledge, we have a human being. So each of you is, in effect, a high-class monad and a group of fellow traveling naked monads. <laughs> and of course, finally, if you get the absolutely clear, uh, clear, infinite monad, that is God. So everything is really a colony of souls, of windowless monads. Now, I might add that for uh, Leibniz, even though matter is only the appearance of monads. He does say the naked monads do, after all, appear to us as matter. And we can describe the naked monads by mechanistic scientific laws. Now, really, of course, the world of physics is an illusion. But it is an illusion that we live in and which happens to obey the laws of physics. And therefore, says Leibniz, it's perfectly all right to go ahead and study it scientifically. We must, however, remember that really the universe is a set of living minds created and determined by God. This is known as Leibniz's compromise between religion and science. Well, now let's go back to the problem of mutual influence. We can call it the mind-mind problem since there's no mind-body anymore. <laughs> if nothing can influence anything, why do things seem to influence each other? Now, this is wider now than merely the problem of how does one perceive the other, although that's part of it. Now we must ask not merely how do we account for perception, but how do we account for any form of apparent influence 
of one monad on another. It seems that I experience an act of will, and then that takes place in my dominant monad. This collection of naked monads, which I call my bodies, moves as a result. So it seems. It seems as though a pin comes into my body, and I then experience a pain. Isn't that influence from one monad to another? It seems as though if we just have one billiard ball hitting another, First, the one rolls as one collection of naked monads does something, and then the other one rolls. Isn't that influence? Or when we all look at this water pitcher, for instance, we all have presumably the same experiences. And isn't that an example of influence? The same real set of monads out there acting on all of us at the same time and causing the same experiences. Well, of course, Leibniz denies that there is any such influence in any of these cases. The, the monads are windowless. There seems to be influence only because God has worked it all out in advance. We are really looking at nothing but the motion picture in our heads that I referred to earlier. But God has synchronized and organized all of our experiences so that influence appears to exist even though it doesn't. God has arranged it, for instance, that whenever I have an experience of will, that will be followed by an experience of bodily action. Whenever I have an experience of a pin entering my body, I, I will have an experience of pain. Whenever I have an experience of a billiard ball hitting another, I'll have an experience of the second one moving. And whenever we all have the same experience, that's because God has arranged for us all to see the same picture at the same instant. In other words, God has organized all our perceptions in advance so that they all mesh, they are all synchronized. He has pre-established a harmony among them. And that's Leibniz's theory of pre-established harmony. It's his solution to the problem of interaction among others. There is no interaction, simply God has pre-established a harmony so that there appears to be interaction. Well, now let's ask a final question. Why did God organize our perceptions the way he did? He could have fed us a totally different stream of experiences and still synchronized them all. Why, in effect, does God show all of us this movie and not some other movie? <clears throat> or if we put the same question more in more familiar terminology, why did God create the world as he did? Why does the world contain the kind of things in it that it does? Why does it follow the kinds of scientific laws that it does? After all, says Leibniz, other universes are logically possible. Why, therefore, this one? Now, notice that in asking this question, Leibniz has abandoned rationalism. He has given up the attempt to see this world as logically necessary, given the nature of reality. He's decided, in effect, that Spinoza's failure means that it can't be done. Remember, Spinoza couldn't deduce the concretes of this world from general principles, and I warned you then a reaction would set in. Well, Leibniz represents the first indication of that reaction in a major way. If you ask Spinoza, are other worlds possible? He would say ridiculous. Any more than if you ask him, are, uh, why did God pick these geometrical theorems rather than some other? He would say no other theorems are possible. And, of course, objectivism would here agree with Spinoza. There's no other possible universe, and therefore there's no sense to asking the question, why this one? But Leibniz has given up on that question. 
which sounds the death knell of rationalism, at least for a century, until Hegel, under the influence of Kant, revivified. He has concluded that reality is not completely logical. Now he still retains a vestige of uh, <coughs> rationalism. God, he says, cannot produce literally any world. He is limited to a self-consistent world, a world without contradictions. You can't have a world where the angle sum of a triangle equals 179 degrees. Impossible, because that contradicts the definition of a triangle. So a possible world for Leibniz is a logically non-contradictory world. Now, of course, Spinoza and objectivism would say that limits the possibilities to one, namely the actual world, but not Leibniz. He says, God, in effect, before the world is created, spreads out in his mind all the possible worlds, and there's a great many, and he asks himself, which one should I actually create? Being good, he wants to create the best world, the best of these worlds. Now you ask, can God create an absolutely perfect world? Says Leibniz, no, he cannot. Because anything God creates must be finite, must be limited, since it's not God. And that which is finite and limited, we know from thousands of years of Christianity and Platonism, is necessarily imperfect. And therefore, there must be some evil in the world. That's logically required. You see here the obvious acceptance of the Augustinian Neoplatonic solution to the problem of evil. But, says Leibniz, God does the best he can given the limitations forced upon him. He chooses the best of all the possible worlds. He chooses the world which has as much order, variety, and goodness as is consistent with the laws of logic. And thus Leibniz's famous line, all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. That is his solution to the problem of evil. If there is evil, that's simply because God is operating under certain constraints. This viewpoint, by the way, I cringe to state, is sometimes referred to as metaphysical optimism. Now, it was very unfortunate for Leibniz's timing that his book came out just around the time of the Lisbon earthquake, which destroyed three-quarters of the city, and which was immediately followed by a gigantic tidal wave killing 1,500 people. <laughs> this was too much for Voltaire, and so he wrote his satire, Candide, Dr. Pangloss there represents Leibniz. And uh, if I may say so, in my opinion, uh, Candide is actually a stupid book. However, it has one clever uh, line of satire, not very profound, but clever. He has his hero, Candide, with Dr. Pangloss, go through a whole series of detailedly described catastrophes, holocausts, and so on. And then he has poor Candide in a bewildered way look up at one point and say words to the effect, if this is the best of all possible worlds, I wonder what the others are like. <laughs> That's about the substance of De uh, Voltaire's contribution to human thought. <clears throat> well, let's conclude Leibniz with one last epistemological point. Notice that truths fall into two classes for him. Those which even God can't violate, those whose opposites would involve a contradiction. In other words, those which are logically necessary in any universe, in all possible worlds. Their opposites are literally inconceivable. Two and two make four, for instance. A is A. 
The angle sum of a triangle is 180 degrees, etc. These are the truths certified by logic, the truths of reason. And, on the other hand, there are the truths which result from God's decision, from his goodness, from his purpose, from his having created this particular world rather than all the others he could have. In the case of these truths, they could have been different had God so decided. These truths are not logically necessary, they are contingent. They happen to be the case in our world, they do not have to be the case. They are true as a matter of brute fact. For instance, bodies fall when you drop them. The planets travel in elliptical orbits. There are nine planets, etc. So on the one hand, we have the truths of reason, logically necessary truths which we can learn apart from experience. And I think I may have, if not now, I do introduce for you the philosophic term a priori. A priori, P-R-I-O-R-I, a priori, which means simply independent of experience. The logically necessary truths are a priori for uh, Leibniz. Uh, they are the purely conceptual truths, true of all possible worlds, but they don't pertain only to this actual world. On the other hand, there are the factual, contingent truths of fact, the ones we learn only from experience, and they are not a priori, but a posteriori. A posteriori means only dependent on experience. Now, think for a moment. Who does this dichotomy remind you of? Well, it should remind you of Hobbes. Even though he was different in certain ways. Remember, he contrasted relations of names with matters of fact. Now, of course, for Hobbes, relations of names were simply linguistic. That isn't true for Leibniz. They are the truths of reason are eternal laws of reality for him. Even God can't violate them. And for Hobbes, matters of fact didn't come from God's will. But if we leave aside those differences, we have two philosophers agreeing on the following distinction. And of course, they weren't the only two. The truths which are learned by reason and are necessary versus the truths which are learned by experience and are brute, contingent, facts. Two radically different philosophers, so it seems. An ardent theist, Leibniz, and a virtual atheist, Hobbes. An ardent idealist, a passionate materialist, a continental rationalist, and a more or less of an empiricist. And yet we have that same basic cleavage and dichotomy. Now, you see how the ground is being laid for Kant those of you who know it. By the time he comes on the scene, this dichotomy is regarded as self-evident. He proceeds to build on it. Now Leibniz has no ethics, which is very convenient for us because it's late, so we'll take our break here. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, if you observe the progression from Descartes through Spinoza and Leibniz, you will see what happens given the rationalist approach to philosophy. We start with allegedly self-evident, clear and distinct principles, underived from sense experience, which means in actual fact with arbitrary first principles, even though they are allegedly innate and a heritage from God. And we proceed to deduce the consequences from these starting points. Whenever our conclusions conflict with the testimony of the senses, we simply write off the senses as confused, inadequate, deceptive, invalid, and proceed to deduce doggedly. 
And the result is the construction of a number of opposed, imposing philosophic systems, all contradicting the others, all more or less completely removed from the everyday common sense world given us by the senses. We have, in effect, a series of intellectual castles in the air, as I mentioned at the outset. Free-floating castles, unrelated to and often in direct conflict with sensory data. That is the consequence of an approach whose essence is the manipulating of concepts cut off from sense experience. And it is an obviously unsatisfactory and invalid approach to philosophy. Now, therefore, we are going to turn to a school which reacted strongly against the rationalist's approach, a school which claims to be radically opposed to the rationalists. And this school asserts that there are no innate ideas, that all knowledge is based on the evidence of the senses, and that the way to arrive at knowledge of reality is not to engage in conceptual manipulations within our minds, but to open our eyes and look at the actual world. This viewpoint, as you know, is called empiricism. The view that there are no innate ideas and that all knowledge begins with experience. The 18th century in philosophy is the century dominated by empiricism. The empiricists pride themselves on being men of common sense, concerned with practical life. They say that this world here and now that we perceive is real. Although, as you'll see, they don't say that for very long, but at least they start off saying that. To solve philosophic problems, they say, we must appeal to concrete facts, not get lost in a chain of floating abstract deductions. Now, our ultimate description of empiricism is going to be much less flattering than this. When we get to the end of this development, you're going to be hard put to choose between Leibniz and the fruit of the empiricist approach as they worked it out. But we'll watch and see it happen. Now, this evening, we're going to look at the man often called the father of British empiricism. It's called British empiricism because all the famous ones were in Britain. And, of course, he is not really the first. Bacon and Hobbes preceded him in the modern world, among others. The man I mean is John Locke, 1632 to 1704. So he was 18 when Descartes died. His contemporary was Spinoza, actually, so we're backtracking slightly to pick up this school. Now, Locke was a strong advocate of reason. All men have it, he held. All men have the capacity to learn the facts. They have the capacity to agree, and they must always follow reason. We must be objective. We must not let our passions or our prejudices sway us. We must go by the evidence scrupulously, factually, impartially. Now, I should say that Locke does make appropriate overtures to the religious camp. He is himself a deeply religious Christian and wrote a great deal in defense of Christianity. But he does draw a clear line between faith and revelation on the one hand and reason on the other. And in philosophy, only reason counts. And we can therefore simply ignore the faith side of Locke this evening. But it's there. He is a deeply religious man. Now, in this general pro-reason attitude, understood in the widest sense, Locke is very similar to the rationalists. Now, this pro-reason attitude lasted among philosophers until the time of Hume and Kant. And it was at that point that the consequences of all the de different definitions of reason caught up to philosophers. Now, usually it takes 50, 75, 100 years 
for the practical results of a philosophy to manifest itself. Kant died in 1804. By the mid-19th century, reason culturally was on its way out altogether. And of course, you can look around you today to see what happened by the mid and late 20th century. Nevertheless, at this point in time, we're still in the 17th century, we're in a very pro-rational period. And you must understand this, otherwise you will never grasp why the 17th century is called the age of reason, or the 18th century the enlightenment. We now see the disasters implied in their philosophies. Obviously, they didn't. And so everybody at this period, with a few exceptions, but all the major figures, are still confident about the power of reason, the rationalists and the empiricists. They differed, of course, in their theory as what reason was and how it operated, but they did not differ about the fact that reason is an absolute and that we must accept it as against dogma, emotion, prejudice, etc., which was, of course, in itself a very important attitude shaping cultural developments. But we are in pure philosophy in this course. Well, let us pick up Locke now. We must, he says, use the right method in philosophy. Uh, everybody, you know, is emphasizing the method since the Renaissance. We must, he says, first inquire into the nature and powers of the human mind. Find out what it is and isn't fitted to deal with, what rules it must follow. And the first thing we have to establish is that the mind at birth has no innate ideas, no knowledge. It is a white paper and dark chamber, an empty cabinet, a tabula rasa. What writes on the paper or fills the cabinet or illuminates the chamber? Only experience. Now, Locke devotes the first book of his uh, famous essay concerning human understanding to an all-out polemic against innate ideas. Here are a few typical arguments that he offers. It had been argued by some philosophers that there are certain ideas universally accepted by all men, and this must prove they were innate. Locke answers, that doesn't prove anything of the kind. If there are universally accepted ideas, that could derive from the fact that the fact in question is so obvious that nobody could escape it. It doesn't have to show that it was born innately. Moreover, he says, there is really no universal agreement. Even on such a thing as the law of contradiction, he says, it isn't true that everyone agrees. Savages, imbeciles, babies have never even heard of it. They're not even conscious of the law of contradiction. Well, of course, the innate idea advocates came back with, well, of course, they aren't conscious. Yet, you have to come to the stage of uh, reason in order to grasp that you have those ideas. Locke answers, well, that's true for all ideas. Are, are they all innate then? Why do we have to discover them if they're innate? As for moral ideas, he says, there is no universal agreement even among adult civilized men. Locke is not a relativist in ethics. There are such things as correct ideas in ethics, but they require proof. And if they need to be proved, he says, they are not innate. Even the idea of God is absent from some people, and it differs from tribe to tribe and group to group. So, so much for the idea that there are universally accepted ideas which must therefore be innate. Moreover, he argues, to call an idea innate is usually a way of trying to protect it from criticism. 
These rationalists come in and say their innate ideas come from God, and therefore if you challenge their innate ideas, they make a big noise about this as an attack on God. This is wrong, says Locke. It simply amounts to entrenching your prejudices under the protection of the Almighty. You take your arbitrary subjective views and masquerade them as a word from on high. We have to give up this. We have to establish our principles by an appeal to the facts as we experience Another argument he gives of a quite different type. Moreover, he says, even suppose we were born with certain innate ideas. The ones that the rationalists make such a big fuss about would be useless to us even if we had them. For instance, he says, suppose we were born with such an innocuous idea as what is, is, which of course is uh, another formulation of existence exists. What have you got when you've got that, says Locke? You can't deduce any concrete facts from it anyway. Now I just interject you, we'll see whether Locke needs this or not as he goes on, but here's already at the outset a typical modern empiricist scorning broad abstractions as essentially irrelevant and useless. Now you see, I've left out many of his arguments, but you see that his arguments are very uneven. And the rationalists could and did answer them all one way or another. Leibniz wrote a whole work called The New Essays on Human Understanding specifically to refute Locke. Locke left out the single crucial argument against innate ideas, namely that an innate idea is a contradiction in terms. An idea is a form of awareness of reality. An innate idea would be an awareness of reality prior to any contact with reality, which is obviously an impossibility. But you'll see soon why Locke didn't and couldn't use this argument. In any case, he establishes to his satisfaction that man is born tabula rasa. And now he says, I will prove to you positively that we get all ideas from experience. How? Well, I will undertake to show for any idea you name how it has its ultimate sources in experience. And if I can do this, of course, that will cut the ground out from under the advocates of innate ideas. Now for Locke, there are two basic sources of experience and only two, outer and inner. By outer, he means the five senses. Sensation is his name for the faculty of sense perception. By inner, he means what we would today call introspection, the faculty of looking into the content of your own consciousness. His term for that, by the way, is reflection. Reflection for him does not mean a process of abstract thought, it means what we mean by introspection. So there's only two sources of experience, sensation and reflection. Uh, these two are the only ultimate source of all our ideas and concepts, no matter what. From virtue to God to art to the theory of relativity, if you knew about it. There's no other possible source. Now some people objected and they said, surely we don't get every concept from experience. What about centaur? for instance, or Golden Mountain. We couldn't get these concepts from experience. Locke says, well, of course, what we get from experience are the basic irreducible building blocks out of which all our other concepts are later constructed or compounded. We may never, for instance, have seen a white circle, but we have seen circles, and we have seen white. 
So we can put the two together in our mind and get the idea of a white circle. But in that sense, the idea of a white circle still comes ultimately, its constituents come from experience. What we get from experience are the irreducible components of all our later ideas. We get, in effect, the atoms of knowledge from experience. And we then build up the compounds. Now Locke's name for these atomic ideas, using the traditional terminology, are simple ideas. And simple, as you know, in philosophy means simply indivisible, irreducible. A simple idea is an idea which can't be reduced to constituents, an irreducible unit which you have to experience directly in order to understand. From sensation, for instance, all of the following, and there's many more, are simple ideas. Red, green, hot, cold, bitter, sweet, rough, smooth, moving, rest, space, extension, unity, existence, etc. And many more. All of these are simple. No mind, says Locke, can invent or construct one such simple idea. They come straight from experience, and without the necessary experience, you cannot understand the idea. If you were, for instance, congenitally deaf, the word loud would simply remain a noise to you. You have to be able to hear, and then you say, oh yes, loud, I know what that is. From reflection or introspection, we grasp all the states and activities of our own minds. Willing, feeling, reasoning, pleasure, pain, judging, perceiving, remembering, etc. In other words, the mind acts on its simple ideas, and by introspection we can observe those actions. And again, we must experience these ideas, these internal ideas, uh, these ideas of our own inner actions, if we're to understand them. If you have never in your life felt a pain or anything approaching it, the word pain will simply be a mystery to you. You don't know what it stands for. No one can invent a simple idea. Imagine, for instance, I told you, invent the taste of roast buffalo. You just can't do it. Now, if I told you it's one part pineapple and three parts banana split, well, you could <laughs> maybe do it. But if it's a simple idea, you have to taste it to know. Now, Besides simple ideas, there are complex ideas built out of simple ideas. In other words, the mind for Locke is not simply passive, it's active. From a small stock, a comparatively small stock of simple ideas by various operations, we can produce an endless quantity of ideas. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. In principle, the piano has how many keys, the modern piano? 88, isn't it, with the black and white? And yet the whole wealth of piano music comes from those 88 simple units combined in all the different ways. Well, similarly, the whole fabric of our knowledge comes from a handful of simple ideas put together in various ways. Now, there are four mental operations we use, according to Locke, to make complex ideas out of simple ones. One is repetition. We can simply repeat a given idea over and over. For instance, one, one, one. One, and if you do it 12 times, you get the idea a dozen. Simple enough. Or secondly, we can compare two or more simple ideas, view them side by side and grasp their relationship. And that's how we get the idea bigger or to the left of, and so on. Or three, we can combine simple ideas. For instance, we can observe in this cigarette, one simple idea would be its whiteness and one would be its hotness, and one would be its smoothness. And we put them all together to form cigarette. 
That is combination used to form the complex idea of cigarette. And finally, says Locke, we can abstract. Abstraction he defines as the separating of one idea from all those which accompany it in reality. And that's the source of general ideas. So for instance, we look at a number of men and we pull out or separate the idea of rationality and animality. And we thereby form the general idea rational animal or man in general. Now, I don't want to go into this evening into Locke's theory of abstraction because it's complicated and unnecessary for this course. Obviously, his theory of abstraction is going to be crucial for his theory of universals. And without going into details, I'll just say the following boldly. Locke's theory of universals is a very confused mixture of different elements. There is a certain Aristotelian element in his writings in regard to universals. But there is also a very strongly, dominantly a nominalist element. Now, if you have to classify him, I would say on the whole, and with appropriate exceptions, Locke is a nominalist on the theory of universals. He does not really believe in the Aristotelian concept of abstraction. He does believe that existence possess real natures, real essences. Now that makes things what they are, and that explains the properties of things. To that extent, he follows Aristotle. But, he adds, the real essence of a thing is unknowable in most cases. All we can know are the essences that we arbitrarily create by our linguistic practices. The Hobbesian essences. Remember the nominal essences that I introduced under Hobbes and which all nominalists subscribe to. Now you'll see the results of this mixture in Locke shortly. But in some there is grave trouble in Locke on the theory of universals. And since you hear that there's a large element of nominalism and you remember Hobbes, as I hope you do, you will expect a definite skeptical element in Locke. And if you expect it, you won't be surprised when you hear about it. In any event, let us go on. I want to look more closely at the process I referred to a moment ago, the process of forming compound ideas of entities, material entities, what Locke calls material substances. Material substances. Now Locke assumes that experience gives us directly only isolated simple ideas, separate sensory qualities in effect. And so we ask the question, how do we arrive at the concept of integrated entities? And he answers, apparently obviously, well, we observe that certain qualities, certain simple ideas, go together constantly in our experience. And we therefore come to associate these qualities together in our minds as one unit, one entity. So we build up entities, or ideas of entities, by an active mental process of synthesizing, or uniting, or combining in our minds a set of coexisting simple ideas. So for instance, I observe this cigarette. Uh, one simple idea would be cylindricality. And that I notice when I touch it goes along with smoothness. And that I notice when I put my finger at the tip goes along with the hotness. And that, when I look at it, goes along with the whiteness, and so on and so on. There's a whole cluster of such ideas, and I observe them going together repeatedly, and at a certain point, I say, 
I'm going to give a name to this cluster of coexisting qualities. That's a cigarette. And thus I get the idea of an entity, a material substance, a thing, a cigarette. Now, this account led Locke immediately into an obvious question. And the obvious question is, what keeps the qualities of the cigarette, well, he didn't use that example, but in any entity, what keeps the qualities of a thing together? What makes this one unified entity? Why don't the qualities float off? Why, for instance, don't we have a little cylindrical white patch over on the left, which has no texture at all, so when you go to touch it, there's nothing there. And no temperature, no burning point. And over on the right, meanwhile, when I put my finger there, I get a burn. Only all that's there is the hot, without the little white cylinder. And in front of me, I feel the smoothness, and there's nothing else there, and so on. Now, this doesn't happen, says Locke. But why? Is there any necessity in these coexisting qualities staying together? Well, he says there must be something which holds them together. An entity, a material entity, must consist of something over and above its qualities. There must be some kind of support or bearer. And this phenomenon he calls the substratum, S-U-B, S-T-R-A-T-U-M, the substratum, which means the spread under. It is in effect like a metaphysical pincushion or like a metaphysical glue in which all the various qualities are stuck and which keeps them all together. Now, says Locke, we can uh, uh, draw support for such a thing as a substratum over and above the qualities from our ordinary language. If I say to you, for instance, what qualities does this cigarette have? Notice I say the cigarette has the quality of whiteness, cylindricality, heat, smoothness, etc. Well, if it has them, it must then be something over and above the qualities. It must be the thing which possesses all of these qualities. And therefore, there must be something over and above the qualities, the substratum in which they inhere, which binds them together, which possesses them, which makes it all together one thing. Well, what are the qualities of the substratum? What are the characteristics of the substratum in itself? Well, you should see immediately that it cannot have any characteristics in itself. Because if it had any qualities, the immediate question would be, what keeps those qualities together? And we'd have to have a sub-substratum to keep the substratum stuck together, and so on and so on. The substratum, says Locke, and every material entity has this phenomenon, the substratum is, quote, something I know not what, unquote. Something I know not what. Now, he says, much as I appreciate Descartes that we must have clear and distinct ideas, this happens to be a confused and indistinct one, he says. But nevertheless, it's a necessary idea, because we can make sense of material substances without a substrate. Now, for those of you who remember Aristotle's prime matter, that little uncharacterizable nothing in particular on which all forms are imposed, this is it showing up again in Locke in the form of the substratum. It's the cousin of Aristotle's prime matter. In fact, it's almost the, the daughter. 
or son, I guess. Now, just to make it worse or fill it out, Locke is a dualist like Descartes. He's not an idealist or a materialist. He believes in two kinds of substances, material and spiritual, minds, souls, cells. And he applies exactly the same analysis to spiritual substances. What, he asks, unites all the activities of a mind into one entity? What is the you? We say you think, you dream, you imagine, you will. Well, what is the you that performs all these activities, which binds them all together, which makes it one entity rather than just a disparate stream of activities? Well, there must be, he says, a something which has all those mental attributes, which performs all those. The I, the you, and that is the substratum. And again, it is something, I know not what, which sticks your mental properties together. Now, just to fill it in, of course, Locke believing in God, he also says God is a big cosmic infinite substance. And so on this respect, it's like Descartes. Now, I want you to remember Locke on substance. I'm not going to criticize it now. Uh, Barclay and Hume did quite well by criticizing this doctrine. You should simply see that in this respect, Locke is no empiricist. Because if you're going to go on the basis of experience, you cannot possibly justify the idea of something I know not what. But if you reject it, as Barclay did partially and Hume did completely, you're back to Locke's question, what keeps all the qualities together? Why doesn't the universe simply disintegrate? To which Hume said, it does all the time. <laughs> but uh, we'll wait till we get there. Now let us sketch in Locke's metaphysics. What is the first thing we can know to exist going in order? Well, you might say, since Locke is an empiricist, he must believe that the first thing you know to exist is the physical world. If you think that, you'll be disappointed. According to Locke, the first thing we can know to exist, the self-evident primary with which philosophy begins, is your own mind, your own self. Of that, we have a direct intuition, he says, using that in Descartes' sense, a direct self-evident knowledge of the self. He simply repeats Descartes' cogito. That, the self, he says, the mental self, the mind, is the most certain thing of all. And thus Locke is a firm advocate of the prior certainty of consciousness, and in this respect a thorough follower of Descartes and Augustine. What comes next? Do we at least go from the self to the material world? No. You have to remember that Descartes is not called the father of philosophy for nothing. Remember where Descartes went after the self? To God. So does Locke. The next thing is God, he says. If we get the self by direct intuition, direct self-evidency, we get God by demonstration, by deduction. And he proceeds to offer a standard proof of God which isn't worth discussing. It amounts to, I exist, I must have had a cause, since I'm a thinking being, the cause must have been very powerful, it must itself have been a conscious being, and in effect he finally reaches the idea that there's a being who is the source of all existence, all thought, and so on, and that is God. That's a quick, 
run through of that argument, but it has no value. Uh, so God is the next certainty after the self. And uh, according to Locke, we can be more certain that there is a God than of anything else outside of us, except for ourselves. Here again, he's a straight follower of Descartes. Well, you say, what about the material world? Locke certainly believed in it, after all. He's an empiricist, he believes in material substances. Well, I've been saving the truth for you. We don't, according to Locke, perceive the material world. We do not directly perceive the material world. What we directly perceive is only ideas in our own minds, experiences, sensations in our own minds. Again, you see, a pure Cartesian position, and it was taken for granted by all Descartes' followers. Consciousness is a self-contained, locked-in entity which contemplates only its own experiences, its own ideas. Well, if you ask Locke, as we ask Descartes, how do you know then that there is an external material world? Locke would say with Descartes, well, it's obvious that we don't create our own experiences because they are not subject to our will. We can't get rid of them by an act of will. Well, suppose we say, how do you know they're not all a dream? A dream is involuntary. When you're in the middle of a dream, you can't get rid of it by an act of will. Well, Locke says, no. Material reality must exist as the cause of our experiences. We don't perceive it, so we have to infer its existence, but it must exist as the cause of our experiences. Well, how do you know, uh, Barclay asked, that God doesn't cause our experiences in us directly? And there is no material world at all. Locke's answer to that, after a fair amount of equivocation, amounts to this. Oh, nobody can really be that skeptical. Now, why they can't, given his philosophy, is a big unanswered question. You see, he's in a worse position than Descartes here. Descartes at least had an innate guarantee that God is good. And therefore, if he had a clear and distinct insight that there was a material world, okay, if you accept his epistemology. But Locke is an empiricist. Now, how can an empiricist verify an unperceivable reality? Well, obviously, he can't. And therefore, it's not going to be very long before there is no reality for the empiricist. In other words, Locke had all the problems that we have seen with the causal theory of perception. Now remember what the causal theory is. Reality is the cause, but not the object of our experience. We don't directly perceive reality, only its effects on us. Reality we have to reach by inference. And Locke accepts this for the same reason that Descartes and Hobbes and Spinoza and all the rest did. Can we know the nature of reality, you ask? Yes, says Locke. Our experiences resemble or copy, or represent the things out there in the world. So that although we are caught up in our own little world of consciousness, it happens that our little world of consciousness corresponds to or represents what's out there. And therefore Locke subscribes not only to the causal theory of perception, but the representative theory of perception. Now, of course, he does not believe that all of our experiences represent reality. Only one part of them. Locke is the one who christened the primary-secondary quality distinction. 
Uh, he's the one who introduced those terms. In the primary qualities, he includes all the standard ones plus solidity, because he wanted to distinguish it from empty space, you see. The primary qualities, he says, actually resemble true reality as it actually is. The secondary qualities are merely like the pain we experience when we put our hand in the fire. They are the effects on us of what's out there, but they do not represent real qualities in the object. They are subjective. And his arguments are the standard ones. You can conceive matter without the secondary qualities, not without the primary. The secondary vary from person to person, the primary are invariant, etc. Now you see that Locke's views on the senses and on the physical world, in essence the three strands, the primary secondary quality distinction, the causal theory of perception, the representative theory of perception, all of these repeat the conclusions we've already seen in Hobbes, Descartes, and others. You can be prepared, therefore, to expect the worst possible result in future philosophy. Here is an empiricist, an advocate of common sense, accepting all the doctrines which lead to the unknowability of physical reality. Now, if the empiricists accept this, along with the rationalists, you can expect that it won't be very long before reality exits altogether from the philosophic sea. And that is what Barclay and Hume between them achieved, if you call it an achievement, and that's what we will see next week. Now I want to turn to a final aspect of Locke's epistemology and metaphysics. He also believes in the necessary contingent dichotomy among truths. Now he does not characteristically express it in these terms. For those of you who have read the essay, you'll know that he distinguishes four different types of proposition. But I won't bother you with that kind of detail. The necessary contingent dichotomy is what it comes down to in essence. On the one hand, we have those propositions which we can establish by Descartes' methods, by direct self-evidence or deduction from the direct self-evidence. Now, these propositions, says Locke, are eternal, necessary truths. They are absolutely certain, and we can see why they must be true. On the other hand, there are the propositions which we establish by observation, sense experience. And in these cases, says Locke, we do not get any necessity. We simply observe brute facts. Such and such qualities happen to exist, as our senses report. Such and such qualities happen to coexist together, as our senses report. So there are, in effect, the necessary truths established by reason versus the contingent truths established by the senses, a dichotomy which by now you should be used to. Now let us turn for a moment to the necessary truths, the truths established by reason. What is Locke's view of their status? Well, to make a long story short, Locke wavers with regard to the interpretation of these. Part of the time, he suggests the typical rationalist view, that the necessary truths represent eternal laws of reality, necessary principles which even God can't violate. Part of the time, however, more of the time, insofar as he's a nominalist, he takes a typical Hobbesian view, that necessary truths are simply the results of our linguistic decisions, our semantics, our nominal definitions. Now, therefore, they don't tell us anything about reality. They merely express the way we use words, so that they're conventional, arbitrary, semantic, etc. 
In effect, Locke on this question is a thoroughly inconsistent mixture of Hobbes and Leibniz. Do you see what an eclectic Locke is? He picks pieces from the most opposed philosophies and sticks them together, even though they're diametrically opposed to each other. This approach, by the way, is called British common sense. <laughs> now, turning to the truths that are established by sense experience, the contingent truths, can we ever, asks Locke, reach complete certainty in their case? And in essence, his answer is no. At best, we can only achieve probability in regard to the truth learned by the senses. That's his dominant view. Why? Well, consider a typical example. Suppose you consider gold and the properties of gold. Now you observe that gold, I mean the ordinary element, combines a series of qualities which go together repeatedly in our experience. It's metallic, it's yellow, it has very great weight, it behaves in various ways when combined with other substances, and there's a whole list of separate properties you can rattle off. Well, says Locke, we observe that these qualities coexist repeatedly in our experience. Now, he says, can we ever understand why these qualities go together? And this is typical of anything from the senses. His answer is no. We cannot never understand why these qualities go together. We can see that, in fact, they do go together, but we have no means to know that they must go together nor, therefore, to be sure that they will go together in the future. Now, he says, if we could grasp the real essence of gold, as Aristotle had thought we could, then we could see how all the properties follow from the essence. We could see why gold must have the properties it does, and our knowledge would be certain and necessary. But, says Locke, and in this part he's a real nominalist, we can't grasp real essences. All we can grasp is nominal essences. In other words, we simply decide arbitrarily to call a certain cluster of coexisting qualities by the same term, and we thereby create the phenomenon gold. Gold doesn't express a real necessary union of properties out there in the world. It is merely our human subjective classification. And since we see no necessary connection among the properties that we have jointly labeled gold, we see only that they happen to go together, but we're unable to grasp any real essence that would explain why. For all we can tell, maybe tomorrow they'll stop going together. Maybe tomorrow we'll encounter something with all the properties of gold, except that instead of being yellow, it's green with pink polka dots. Or, instead of being heavy, it's lighter than water. But in every other respect, it's the same. Who knows? How can you know? Says Locke. Well, of course, as a nominalist, you can't. You're confined simply to observing what's before you. The upshot is, for Locke, all observational knowledge, all empirical knowledge is at best probable. Now, you might ask, why is it even probable if we can't grasp any necessity? Why is there even some likelihood that the combination of qualities that we encountered so far will continue tomorrow? Well, that's exactly the question you asked. And in the answer, he wiped out cause and effect and said there isn't even any probability. Now, you see how on issue after issue, Locke's formulations lay the basis for the worst skepticism, which is going to break out shortly after. Now, I should make clear that Locke himself was not a skeptic. 
he is teeming with the seeds of skepticism, but the seeds did not grow into a full David Hume in law. In fact, if we conclude now our very brief summary of Locke's metaphysics and epistemology, the best thing to say is that he is not anything consistently. There are three separate philosophic strands in Locke, all in conflict with the others, all popping up repeatedly and clashing in his discussion of various philosophic questions. And the three strands, as I would identify them, of course he doesn't, are one, there's a large hunk of Cartesian rationalism. For instance, Locke's emphasis on uh, intuitive and deductive, clear and distinct truth. The fact that he begins with the cogito, the prior certainty of consciousness, the idea that we perceive only our own ideas and so on. Then, too, there's a definite element of Aristotelianism in Locke. And that's real, and you must know about it. He did have a real respect for this world. And even though a devout Christian, the supernaturalism, overt mysticism doesn't appear in him, in his philosophy. And as part of his Aristotelianism, he insists on the senses as the base of knowledge, even granted his views on the nature of the senses. And his insistence that the unit of reality is the individual, the particular, the concrete, and his emphasis on reason, and his view of reason as the faculty which operates on sense perception. All of this and very important ideas are Aristotelian. And then finally there is the Hobbesian nominalism and all of the skeptic elements that it led to in Locke. So in effect, to put in a crude mathematical formula something which can't be quantified, I would say Locke is one part Descartes, one part Aristotle, one part Hobbes. Which means if you put it more deeply, one part Plato, one part Aristotle, one part Sophists all blended and glossed over by British common sense. Now this combination obviously cannot survive. And the first thing to go was the Aristotelianism, because you cannot survive. It couldn't survive within the framework of a mixture of Descartes and Hobbes. And of course, with only Descartes and Hobbes left, and the rationalist approach discredited via the constructions of Spinoza and Leibniz, the end result had to be what it was, assuming nobody else came on the scene, namely the final triumph of complete skepticism in David Hume, as you'll see. So much for Locke's metaphysics and epistemology. Now let's say a couple of words, and I mean a couple on Locke's ethics. In ethics, as in metaphysics and epistemology, Locke is an eclectic mixture. And again, you can distinguish three main strands in his viewpoint, all helter-skelter tossed off. In part, he's a hedonist, a psychological hedonist and an ethical hedonist. Remember, a psychological hedonist is the view that all men live for pleasure, that that's a law of human nature. And it was a standard Greek view, even though it's erroneous as a universal observation. And an ethical hedonist is someone who says, and they should live for pleasure. Pleasure is the good. The test of right and wrong is maximizing pleasure. Whatever acts lead to the greatest amount of pleasure are right. And there is this definite hedonist element in Locke. But then, over and above that, you have to remember Locke is a devout Christian. And he often says that God is the author and creator of morality. And that God has commanded his creatures to live a certain way, 
and therefore virtue means obedience to the divine commandments. Now you see this incredible mixture of ancient hedonism and uh, medieval Christianity. And then there's still a third element, which is his heritage from the rationalists. He accepts to a certain extent the typical rationalist view that ethics can be demonstrated geometrically. In other words, that from the very nature of certain concepts, you can establish good and evil strictly deductively, without reference to God or pleasure, simply by reference to the laws of logic. Now, how does Locke combine all these elements? Well, he doesn't really. But if you had to, the view would be something like this. Ethics means obeying the commands of God. And God commands us to behave as long-range hedonists. And since God is rational, so are his commandments, and they're therefore geometrically demonstrable. That's the closest I can make a synthesis out of Locke's ethics. And I won't comment further on such an incredible mixture. You see that Locke's ethics, like his metaphysics and epistemology, is an incongruous mixture of the most diverse elements. Now, in conclusion, let us turn to Locke's politics. By far the most famous branch of his philosophy, and a direct, extremely important influence on the founding fathers of this country. Now, before I utter any reservations about Locke's politics, and I do certainly have many, I want to say the good things about it first, and it does have many profoundly good things. The constituent elements of Locke's politics are not always original with Locke, but he was the first man in Western philosophy to bring them all together and give the theory of inalienable individual rights its first comprehensive influential statement. Now, his famous work on politics is the Second Treatise of Government, which was published in 1690. And in it, it's a rather brief book, he argues forcefully against any form of political absolutism and in favor of individual rights and strictly limited government. And the man he has in mind, although he doesn't mention it, is, of course, Hobbes. He is out to refute. Now, to synopsize these his views politically in the briefest possible terms. I can do it briefly because since this country was founded on these views you're familiar with. There is, Locke argues, a natural law, a law of nature, an objective rule defining men's proper social and political relations to each other. This rule derives from God. It is a commandment of God, but it is graspable and provable strictly by the human reason. This part of his politics is obviously the ancient Stoic view that we looked at many weeks ago. Now, the law of nature, according to Locke, is that even before governments exist, in a state that he calls the state of nature, which means simply a condition without government, all men should exist as free, independent, equal beings. And when he says equal, he doesn't mean economically equal or uh, intellectually equal, but equal in one respect only. All possess certain inalienable individual rights, granted in his opinion by their creator. And those rights are not the right to Medicare, <laughs> guaranteed employment and three months in Florida for your lumbago, but the rights to life, liberty, and property. These rights, says Locke, cannot be interfered with by the government.
They do not come from the government. They logically precede the government. And indeed, it is to secure these rights, to enable us to be safe and secure in their exercise, that we should establish governments. That, he says, is why men should make a social compact or contract with one another to the effect that they will leave the function of protecting rights to the government. They will not attempt to punish criminals, men who infringe their rights by themselves, but will delegate that task to the government. The government, therefore, according to Locke, is not the ruler of the people, but its agent. It simply has the task of protecting men's rights, and above all, their right to the property that they have created by their own labor and which they are therefore entitled to. Government, therefore, he concludes, must be by consent of the government, of the governed, excuse me, must be by consent of the governed and must be strictly limited in its functions. Now, why have a government at all? Well, Locke answers that a government gives you three great advantages that a state of nature without government would not have. It enables us to live by a code of objective laws that we can appeal to in case of disputes. It provides objective impartial judges, if you have a decent government, to apply the laws in particular cases. And it has the power to back up the sentences of the judges to enforce the laws, thereby ensuring that each man will be free and secure within the sphere of his individual rights. So each man, according to Locke, will be able to live by the guidance of his own reason. None will be able to force their views on others. Men, thought Locke, are by and large good. They are rational beings. And here he was in profound opposition to Hobbes. Men do not need an omnipotent ruler to tell them what to do. Left to their own devices by themselves, they can achieve the good life and achieve peace and harmony and happiness on earth. And, he adds, if and when a government begins seriously to abuse its powers, to violate men's rights, to enslave them instead of protecting them, then the people have every right to declare a revolution, to overthrow such a tyrannical government, and reestablish the proper right-respecting kind of government. Now, that is a brief sketch of Locke's politics. Now I think you can see its enormous virtues. In essence, Locke's politics derives from the Aristotelian element in his basic philosophy, from his emphasis on this world, man's reason, the rationality of men, their ability to run their own lives by their own minds, the reality and importance of the individual. The two other elements in Locke, the mystical, i.e. the Cartesian Christian side, and the skeptical, the Hobbesian nominalist side. They are there in Locke, but they are largely implicit in him. He was stopped from making them the dominant or explicit themes of his philosophy. And consequently, they do not break out in substantial ways in his politics. That is the explanation why Locke, with his incredibly mixed philosophy, could have so comparatively good a politics. But these other elements are present in his philosophy. And as you know, the subsequent course of philosophy consisted of suppressing the Aristotelian element in Locke altogether and of transmitting to later centuries only Platonism and skepticism in progressively more intense forms. And the result was, of course, that Locke's politics could not last. 
politics cannot stand by itself. It depends directly on ethics and still more basically on metaphysics and epistemology. As the metaphysics and epistemology and therefore the ethics of later philosophers turned violently Platon, skeptic, Kantian, the result was that approval of Locke's ideas dropped off sharply among philosophers and intellectuals and cultural trendsetters so that by the time you reach the 19th century, intellectually speaking, Locke's politics were swamped, overcome altogether by every variety of a proliferating collectivism, largely generated by the derivatives of human Kant, Hegel, Marx, and a whole unholy crew thereafter. Now this is why Locke's politics with all its virtues could not endure. What would make it endure? Only a complete systematic rational philosophy across the board in every key branch and issue of philosophy. That, unfortunately, is what Locke did not provide. Now, I don't want to imply by my praise of Locke's politics that as he formulated it, it is completely free from objections, even just the politics alone. You cannot escape your metaphysics and epistemology. If something is only a partial element, it will show up in your conclusions. And Locke's confused metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics did have some influence even on his politics. You see, for instance, his references to God as the source of natural law, the source of man's rights. That's a Christian influence on his politics. And if we had time, I could give you many other examples of errors in Locke's politics, cases where his formulations are inexact, or dubious or outrightly dangerous, cases where his doctrines on matters of detail or implementation leave the door wide open for the modern socialist to plunge in with both feet and wreck havoc, cases where his mixed-up philosophy leads him to glaring contradictions. But these details are not really important to us this evening. If you read Locke's second treatise of government, and given your background knowledge of objectivism, you can easily spot for yourself on the basis of what we've said this evening, what is essentially correct and where the formulations go off. For us this evening, I think we have to come to a twofold conclusion. In part, we have to regret deeply that Locke presented his politics in the philosophic framework that he did, because it meant that he never really had a long-range chance to become a permanent influence on the life of mankind. But, nevertheless, we have to express our appreciation to Locke for the excellent elements that are in his politics. Now, true, it's Aristotle who deserves the deepest credit for these elements. And true, Locke made his many errors. But it is nevertheless also true that whatever his errors, Locke is one of the pillars on mankind's road to the discovery of a rational social order. And it's owing to his direct influence that the Founding Fathers were able to hold the views they did and to create the United States of America. This, I submit, is an achievement for which Locke will and properly should always be remembered. I thank you. a great many written questions, so let me just take a few of them first before I uh, go to the floor. 
What is the fallacy in distinguishing, as Leibniz does, between the logically possible and the real? Well, I've really covered that, so I'll review it briefly. The logically possible means the non-contradictory. Any alternative to the reality we have would, in fact, be contradictory. And therefore, any alternative would be impossible. Why would any alternative be contradictory? Because the law of cause and effect is an expression of the law of identity by a reasoning I've already given you. Every entity acts as it does because of its nature. It could not act differently without contradicting its nature. Consequently, given an entity of a certain nature, it must act as it does. Consequently, nothing could occur differently from the way it actually does. The attempt to distinguish the logically possible from the real is to make the real non-logical, which means not dictated by the law of cause and effect of the laws of logic, which means not in harmony with the laws of logic, which is a violation of the basic principles of logic. And therefore, the whole attempt is wrong. For further details, I suggest that you uh, refer to my article on the analytic-synthetic dichotomy, which discusses that question in greater, at greater length. The idea, however, of a possible universe different from ours, speaking here not now of a planetary system or a galaxy, but meaning the total of metaphysical reality, the idea of another possibility is simply wrong. There is no other possibility. That's involved in existence exists. No other existence exists. No other existence is possible. Even the concept of possible has to be defined by reference to this existence. Possible is what is compatible with this existence. There's no other reality to have a base of any other possibility. Now, uh, if observation is invalid, how does Spinoza show that his basic axioms are true? He can't deduce them from anything more primary. Well, in a way, he would simply say, sure, that's why you have to start with clear and distinct self-evidences, which are neither sensory nor deductive. They're simply clear and distinct. But in a deeper way, Spinoza would say a point that I left out of the lecture, and a point which was very influential on Hegel, all ideas are true. Even the ideas that you consider to be the falsest are really substantially true. And here he defends this viewpoint by reference to his psychophysical parallelism. To every mental phenomenon there is a physical correlate. To every thought there must therefore be a corresponding object. And if truth means the correspondence of a thought to an object, every thought must have its truth. Well, what do we call error? Error is simply a thought that gets attached to the wrong object, that's all. It's like a misplaced truth. So, for instance, if you have a hallucination of a pink rat, we say you're wrong. But that doesn't mean there is no physical object associated with the pink rat. It's just that you got mixed up as to what the physical correlate is. The actual physical, physical object is not an actual pink rat, but a pint of alcohol in your blood, let us say. You get the idea? So in this sense, there is no false ideas. All ideas are guaranteed to be true by virtue of the fact that all ideas express inevitably the development of God. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that on a lower level there aren't superficially false ideas. 
as Spinoza would say, for instance, Descartes is wrong on certain points, and he's right. But that's on a lower level, so to speak. On the deeper level, all ideas are true, and therefore Spinoza's are. Now, this particular theory was developed by Hegel into what was called the coherence theory of truth, that all ideas have a degree of truth, and that there's no such thing as a completely false idea. But uh, it's, it's a hinted at in Spinoza, and that's one of the reasons that Spinoza is said to have an influence on Hegel. Um, all right, I'll take one from the floor. Yes? Wasn't Spinoza an advocate or champion of individual freedom, even though he didn't believe individuality was real? Yes, he was. Spinoza was a definite individualist politically, and I think I will take this point to answer this question, which reads Spinoza's ethics, because that will help to clarify for you how could an individualist believe that individuality is unreal? Now, very few people could do that but Spinoza. <laughs> now, let's take a look at his ethics, which is the background of his individualist politics. Of course, the whole 17th century is a germinal individualist era. You see, that's what laid the ground for all the individualist revolutions of the 18th century and for America. And therefore, to a certain extent, Spinoza is simply reflecting in his individualism the cultural climate of the emphasis on reason, this world, science, uh, the individual, which seeped into everybody's thought. In this sense, the cultural climate of the age of reason was infinitely superior to anything you can dream of living in the 20th century in the cesspool of irrationalism. So to some extent, no matter what a philosopher's foundation was, he absorbed the individualist politics. Even Kant has large elements of individualism in his politics. They're in grotesque conflict with the rest of his philosophy, but he didn't see fully the political conclusions. His immediate followers did, but he didn't. Now, on Spinoza's ethics, it is a blend of two elements, just as his whole philosophy is. Just as his metaphysics and epistemology are partly a religious mysticism and partly a logical pro-science view, so his ethics is partly a kind of stoic, platonic otherworldliness and contempt for the world of appearances, and yet partly it's a this-worldly naturalistic egoism. Spinoza is classified as an egoist in ethics. And there are many points which, out of context, students of objectivism would very much approve of and agree with in Spinoza's ethics. Now, I'll give you just a sample of the egoistic, this-worldly side of Spinoza. Well, to begin with, although you wouldn't agree with this point, he is a psychological egoist. He believes that all men are necessarily egoistic in their actions. He believes the basic motivation of all men is self-assertion, self-fulfillment, self-preservation. Now, this is incorrect, as I've mentioned in the lecture, as a universal observation, but it is a reflection in Spinoza of the common Greek advocacy of psychological egoism. And Spinoza goes on with the Greek view, this is good. Men should be selfish. He is an ethical egoist. Now, you can ask on this, as you asked on the question of politics, as you see, his individualism comes from his egoism. How can he be an egoist if he holds that the individual self is only appearance? And his answer would be, well, even so. That is how it appears. We do appear to be separate individuals. 
and we must act accordingly. Now, what do you think of that? In any event, it's not a very substantial foundation, but nevertheless. Virtue, he says, therefore, and he insists on this, is not self-sacrifice. Virtue is self-fulfillment, self-perfecting, perfecting the power of the mind to think and of the body to act. And the result of virtue, says Spinoza, will be personal individual happiness, pleasure, which is the proof of a truly moral man. Now all this, you see, is in a general way within the Greek tradition in ethics. And you can find many points to agree with in Spinoza's views here. For instance, his insistence that pleasure is not bad but good, that life is to be lived and enjoyed. Quote from Spinoza, Assuredly nothing forbids a man to enjoy himself save grim and gloomy superstition. Unquote. The wise man, he says, enjoys the things of this life. And Spinoza has many pungent things to say about those who are obsessed with the afterlife and who tremble in the face of death. The wise man, says Spinoza, pays no attention to death, whatever. He doesn't waste his time brooding about it. Quote, his wisdom is a meditation not of death, but of life, unquote. Of course, he doesn't believe in any personal immortality. When you're dead, that's the end. Uh, and then, of course, all the Christians chimed in, well, if there was no personal immortality, if we didn't fear an afterlife, no one would be moral. To which Spinoza answers, a very clever answer, which I will read you from him. To say that the man who does not believe in personal immortality has no incentive to right living is not less absurd than to suppose that because he does not believe that he can, by wholesome food, sustain his body forever, he should wish to cram himself with poisons and deadly fare. Or that because he sees that the mind is not eternal or immortal, he should prefer to be out of his mind altogether <laughs> and to live without the use of reason. These ideas are so absurd as to be scarce worth refuting." Unquote. Now, you see, you can find a lot of that in Spinoza, and he's very interesting from that point of view. And that's just a sample. But now, mixed in with this, this worldly egoism is a profound strain of Platonism and Stoicism, deriving from the Platonist elements in his metaphysics and epistemology. Most men, he says, are slaves to their emotions to emotions which are thrust on them by external causes, causes that they do not really clearly and distinctly understand. And the result is most men spend their lives buffeted and ravaged by blind emotions, hatred, fear, envy, guilt, rivalry, etc. Now in a famous section of his work on ethics, a section entitled Of Human Bondage, which is where Somerset Maugham got the title from, Spinoza tells us how to escape from bondage to such emotions. And how do you do it? Well, you must, in essence, understand the universe fully. You must see how everything follows inevitably from the nature of reality, in other words, of God. You must see that nothing could possibly in any detail have been different. And then you will experience serenity, tranquility, acceptance, peace of mind. You won't feel fear. You won't feel hate. You won't feel any emotional rebellion. Who can rebel against the inevitable when he sees it clearly as inevitable? 
Now you see the obvious stoicism of all of this. We must, he says in a famous phrase, perceive the world subspecie eternitatis, which means under the aspect of eternity, which amounts to we have to lose the narrow, petty perspective of our own confining cares and concerns and see the universe from the aspect of the grand totality. And then we will see that all is really one, all is inevitable, we really are the same as each other, and we will find peace. Now you see that there's not much left of his egoism when you combine it with the rest of this, because if I am you and you are him and we're all ultimately identical, then living for myself becomes living for the whole totality of the universe and the whole distinctively egoist character of the ethics is gone. In any event, the crowning virtue for Spinoza is what he calls the intellectual love of God. Now, since God means reality, it's the intellectual love of reality. In other words, the full understanding of the universe by man's intellect. The uh, dedication to grasp and explain everything about the universe by human reason until finally the totality has been mastered. So in this respect, Spinoza is an arch champion of the full, free, unfettered scientific use of the human mind. That's his scientific rational side, you see. But he uses it to prove the deterministic rigidity of the universe and the importance of turning away from the petty cares of this world and immersing oneself in the contemplation of eternity. So again, you have that terrific mixture of Platonist mysticism and naturalistic, scientific, rational egoism. But if you excise simply the egoist element, you can find a lot in Spinoza. Very interesting. I've often in conversation been accused of being a Spinozist. It doesn't last for very long when they hear what the rest of my views are, but um, there is to that extent a certain similarity out of context on certain points. Now, that, believe it or not, was an answer to a question from the floor. So I'll take another written one. Uh, I've always heard determinism expounded in relation to a divinity or man's genes as the causal factor. Considering Spinoza's pantheism and lack of individuation, I don't understand how determinism applies. Well, no, you're quite wrong. Determinism is simply the view that everything that happens is inevitable. It doesn't have to be God and it doesn't have to be genes. It can be atoms following mechanistic laws, a la Democritus and the materialists. It can be your id in your toilet training, a la the Freudians. It can be your economic environment, a la the Marxists. It can be um, the logic of reality, a la Spinoza. Determinism is a very broad abstraction. God and genes are only two popular versions of it. There's many others. Was the mysticism of the continental rationalists resisted by the scientists of the time? Mostly no. Scientists do not set philosophic trends. They are simply human beings like everybody else, and they accept the dominant philosophic trends. Now, qua scientists in this period that we're talking about, 17th and 18th century, they were much more rational than today's scientists. 
in this, I don't mean necessarily their theories were superior because there is obviously great virtues in scientific, some modern scientific theories, but I mean as men, they were more rational on the whole because the intellectual climate was more rational. But there were weird mystics among the scientists in their extra scientific activities, not the least of which of them being Isaac Newton, who believed that space and time, to give you just a taste, were the sense organs of God. Now, so much for the idea of scientists being uh, impervious to mysticism. If you go to Southern California, you'll see what scientists are like uh, <laughs> philosophically. And the question here goes on, was this a factor checking the immediate popularity of um, uh, continental rationalism? No. Continental rationalism was checked, if it was, by the British empiricists, who were, to some extent, influenced by science and admirers of it, but primarily they derived from Aristotle and from Descartes himself, as you see in the case of Locke. So uh, scientists, are, as scientists, are not factors in the history of intellectual development. They simply are products along with every other field. Uh, what about this question? It doesn't have anything to do with the lecture, but I couldn't resist it. An altruist does not respect, I'm quoting now, an altruist does not respect the rights of others. There is no reason, therefore, for others to respect the rights of the altruist. This means there is nothing wrong with killing the altruist. Do you agree? How's that for a short argument in favor of murder? <laughs> now, what is wrong with this argument, just as an intellectual exercise? Now here you have to be precise. It starts, an altruist does not re respect the rights of others. How do you know? Are you talking about the actions of every altruist or the theory of altruism? Are you saying that every advocate of altruism goes around robbing, raping, and murdering? That is bizarre. Most of them are very law-abiding, uh, and they spend most of their time writing books. <laughs> or are you saying that their theories, if consistently applied politically, would lead to the abolition of rights and dictatorship? If you say that, then yes, that's true. But the fact that somebody advocates a theory is not justification for killing him even if it's a theory which, if consistently applied, would lead to murder. You do not kill somebody for an idea. Here you have to remember that you are an advocate of individual rights, even if your opponent is not. And his individual rights include the right to propagate utterly false, vicious, destructive ideas. When can you step in? Only when he begins to act on those ideas in the form of initiating physical force against an innocent victim or victims. At that point, you step in. And then you step in, not because of his theories, but because of his actions. If you don't keep that idea in mind, uh, you obliterate the idea of individual rights, you obliterate the distinction between thought and action, and you are therefore in the position of someone can just as well come up to you and say, well, look, most egoists in history have uh, preached uh, dictatorship 
and brutality, and since you're an egoist, even if you don't advocate it, this is simply likely to arouse in the masses the lust to brutality, and therefore we better kill you before you cause trouble. Now, you would object to that done to you. The same thing goes the other way. I don't mean the deductions are the same. In quality, I mean simply you do not initiate force because of disagreement of ideas. You distinguish between the theory and the action. I wanted to say that in case the person intended to act on the theory, <laughs> the theory implied in his question. Uh, let me just take a look in the last few minutes at some of these that came in. If there's any that are brief, give me a second. If the dichotomy of necessary and contingent facts is false, how does one apply this to human actions? Is it wrong to imagine that a man could have acted differently than he has? I cover exactly that question in my article on the analytic synthetic dichotomy. No. It is certainly a man has free will. Having free will, he could have acted differently than he did. But I would not apply the term contingent to that. That is why we have the term volition. Volition is not in conflict with the law of cause and effect, as I have demonstrated in earlier lectures. And it is one subspecies of cause and effect. But it is the kind of action which allows alternatives. I would never call that contingent, though, because contingent implies causeless, Divorced from cause and effect, divorced from logic, brute, unintelligent. There is no such phenomenon in human or the non-human parts of reality. What there is, is a universe governed by iron cause and effect. Everything must act in accordance with its nature. And man has a specific nature compatible with that law. But the nature of man is such that he has the faculty of choice. Therefore, he, you could imagine different actions. But I wouldn't call that contingent. For further details, see the article that I mentioned. Is Leibniz's reasoning correct that there must be ultimate indivisible substances composing reality? That is just the kind of question I would refuse to answer. In my opinion, that is physics, not metaphysics. I would never engage in any deductive attempt from abstract philosophic principles to determine whether the ultimate constituents of reality are atomic or continuous. That is pure armchair rationalism if you attempt that. There is no way philosophically of answering those questions. And consequently, uh, I do not want to end up with my own theory of monads or the equivalent. That is not the province of philosophy. Uh, let me see if I can find... Does anybody have a last one from the floor? Yes. Yes. Did did pre-established harmony imply determinism? Yes. Uh, all your perceptions are determined in advance, and Leibniz is in that respect a thorough determinist. There are attempts on his part to reconcile determinism and free will and modify it, but substantially he is a full-fledged determinist. Uh, any of those cases where everything is synchronized in advance. Well, since the whole physical series is determined, the whole mental one is also. Uh, uh, would Plato's form of the good, or Plotinus is the one, necessitate a best of all possible worlds, since, since perfection, which was also perfectly good, must radiate or emanate in the best or most perfect of all possible ways? Uh, yes, if uh, you say that the world is run 
by a dir directly or indirectly by a um, fundamental feature, which is the apex of reality, which is perfect, and which is responsible for everything else, then you believe, in effect, that there is an ultimate good purpose running everything, and you will be a teleologist. And all teleologists, in that respect, believe in this being the good, this world, as being as good as it can be. Does it mean, therefore, that, that uh, Plato and Plotinus believed that other worlds were possible? No. They weren't Christian, remember. They were Greek. And the Greeks believed the whole universe, including even the debased physical world, I mean, those who believed it was debased, was eternal and emanated eternally. So the idea of other possible worlds is a distinctively Judeo-Christian view. That was not in any of the Greeks, except by the implication of the necessary contingent dichotomy. They thought individual facts within this world could have been different, which is a mistake on their part. But nevertheless, as a general rule, the Greeks did not believe in the idea of another possible world. Now you say, would this imply determinism in their ethics? First of all, determinism comes on under metaphysics, not under ethics, but would this imply determinism? That everything happens for the best? Well, not necessarily, because they could take the view everything happens for the best, but one of the best things is that man has free will. And uh, that adds to the perfection of the world. That's the typical Christian answer. And therefore, even though everything happens for the best, man has free will. And therefore, it's not determinism. Now, that answer is ultimately incompatible with an all-powerful God, but it's been a very common answer. Um, yeah, well, I'll end on this one. I'll look at the rest at home and see if there's any of general interest for next week. Is there any likelihood that you will teach the second half of the course live within the next year? None whatever. Uh, I will be giving a different course next fall and another one uh, two falls from now, but I will have no plans to give the second half of this one live in the remotely foreseeable future. Okay, thank you very much. This course continues with Lecture 11.